Welcome everyone to the Joelle Martin Mastery Podcast. I'm a networking expert and the author of the upcoming book, No, No Strangers, How to Build Community, One Relationship at a Time. My why is the pursuit of mastery, and the goal of this podcast is to lock arms on a lifelong mission of daily personal growth to become the best version of ourselves. So let's dive in to today's episode. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of the podcast. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. We are joined by a very special guest. He's achieved a level of mastery as the drummer for a bunch of amazing artists, a bunch of amazing acts and bands, including uh, Serena Ryder, Edwin, Cardinal Fischel, uh, Thornley, Bedouin Sound Clash, Ben Kenny of Incubus, and last but not least, In 2021, he became the drummer for the multi-platinum band, Big Wreck. So welcome to the podcast, Seku Lamumba. Seku, how are you? And how good does it feel to be out on the road, back on tour, playing to big, (laughs) enthusiastic crowds after a lengthy lockdown? Hey, man, you you said it all. That's that's absolutely it. It feels incredible. And it's... um, you know, I, I, you you worked in the industry, so I don't have to tell you what this must have been like. You know, it's it, uh, it, it it this whole pandemic has kind of decimated, you know, our our industry for a while, and so um, it feels amazing to be back, man. It's uh, it feels good to be back playing in front of people. It was a little touch and go for me for a while there. There was a point where I wasn't sure if I was going to come out of this still being a drummer. You know, my wife and I are, are starting a, are looking to start a family. Uh, not yet, but looking to, and uh, you know, it's it's pretty tough if you're trying to survive on <laughs> on on drummer wages when there's no music, you know, being uh, created. So it's it's good it's back, and um, what we're noticing is is, uh, and I don't know how long it lasts for, but what we're noticing is that at the shows, like people are starved for for shows again and good shows again, you know, so. All the shows have been really well attended. People have been pretty rabid and pretty enthusiastic. The feedback after shows online has been um, has been just amazing. So yeah, it feels great to be back. You know, yeah. Sure. The the interviews that I did with musicians on this podcast at the start of the pandemic, some of them were pretty dark, where musicians mm. didn't know if their skills were ever going to be needed again. We didn't know if there'd ever be live shows again. So musicians with all this talent in one area, suddenly that that's irrelevant and it it means nothing. So man, there was like a a darkness for a while there. For sure, dude. Exactly. That's, that's the truth. Like, you know, we don't generally have very transferable skills. People, I've been doing this for, I do this for a living. I have for the last 25, 26 years, maybe, you know, so it's what I know. I just wake up. I, I, you know, I'm, I, I have been, I still am to a degree, a session drummer. So, you know, I just, you put something in front of me and I figure out what the idiom is and I learn how to play it and that's how I make my money. So how do you transfer those skills, you know, <laughs> to, to something that's not music and, and specifically in my case, drumming related. So yeah, it's, it's good to be back. Like I was looking into being a mailman, dude. Like I had done training for it and everything. I'd gone out and walked with a mail delivery guy like on on an actual mail walk and that was going to be what I was going to do um 
Uh, and then, you know, as fate would have it, Ian called. <laughs> and two years later, here we are, you know. So, yeah, it was it was wild. Yeah, the, the biggest conversion of industries that I saw was musicians becoming real estate agents. Like I could name yeah. a ridiculous amount because you have the bottom, like the pit that was the music industry and you had the all-time highs that was real estate, right? Yeah. So it, I, I can, and and it's like super talented musicians that have transitioned over and, and they're, they're yeah, they're having a lot of success. And it, it's, mm-hmm. it's what's crazy is it seems like there's some skills you develop as a musician that translate well, where it's like not being afraid, afraid of rejection. It's it's a numbers game and asking for what you want and, and taking care of the fan base, which is like your clients. And so I can right. I can see the, the transition there. That's really interesting. Wow. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, so let's share with the listeners how we ended up here today with this interview. So uh, at, at the end of every interview, um, afterwards, I, I talk to the guests and I just say, hey, um, is there anyone you can think of that would make for a great guest for a future episode? And I asked that of Rich Beto of, uh, you know, Finger Eleven fame and Saint Asonia fame. And he came up with two names. He came up with Dave Buckner, who is the drummer for Papa Roach, who's coming up uh, in a few months on, on, they're promoting a new book about their first, uh, their first album uh, in fest. And then he mentioned Seku and here we are. So we got to give a shout out to Rich for the, the, the powerful hookup here. So. Love that guy, man. He is something else. Yeah. We toured a bunch back in the days. Um, I'm sure I told you with, with Thornley, we opened for them and um, Three Days Grace on uh, a bunch of dates and they were wild. I mean, they were, uh, it was really fun to watch him play. I mean, he has such an energy uh, when he plays that you just did not see from anybody. Like he used to, part of his playing, part of his fills was him swearing in his drum kit. He'd be playing and like spinning at it, like telling him to go fuck itself like, as he was hitting it and just, you know, just really in a place. So he's, he was mesmerizing to watch on stage and he plays like a God too. He's, he's a really amazing player. Um, and we just didn't touch over the years. So it's, you know, he's, he's has his ups and downs and um, I look, he looks like he's healthy and he's in a much better place now. So I'm, I'm really happy that he, uh, you know, he, he did the, um, the, and if you mentioned, I'm sure you did mention, but he did some Godfrey dates and it was his first time back um playing with them well playing musically for i think he said he told me about five or six years so you know it was a lot it was a little intimidating so but he really stepped up man just really put himself in a place where he just had you know about six weeks i think to learn all that stuff and uh i think his first show or two were a little rocky because you know it's been six years and you're not playing this really high energy you know heavily powered rock stuff but he killed it, man, and and eventually like got to a place where he was. You saw that rich again. You saw the guy that people, you know, pay tickets to come see. I think that's the reason Chris Daughtry reached out to him because he was always a big fan of Riches, you know, uh, and his playing. So um, yeah, I just I'm a, I'm a huge fan. I can't say enough good things about him. An incredible human being, like just just the the nicest dude. So hopefully we'll uh, get to see each other more on the road these days as he's um he's back at it again so those dates that was him playing with daughtry and it was big rec was on on 
on the bill as well. Yes, exactly. We were opening. It, it, it was a short run. I think it was like two weeks. And Chris takes a, a fair bit of time off between shows. So I think it ended up being nine shows in total. And Rich came in for, was it two or three? Um, I think Dachi's drummer had to step out for another engagement for a bit. So Rich came in. And then some something happened with the drummer as well for Europe. So he came back in and did the European dates, which we weren't there for. Um, but he did those dates. And from what I understand, they went really, really well. So Man, those yeah. European festivals, some nights were 90,000 people. Like the videos I wow. saw, the videos I saw that Daughtry posted and that he posted were like all-time big crowds. It was insane. Oh, wow. That's amazing, man. Yeah, good for him. Uh, and it's just great because he, you know, I think he given up i don't want to speak too much for him but i think he kind of more has given up doing shows of that size or, or playing with bands like that level so getting um to play with him i know was a real thrill for him and i'm glad that he's back out there we all like what where it stands like we, we we've talked about rich in our band a bunch over the recent weeks and months and stuff just kind of rooting for him like we all want him to like secretly steal the gig you know and, <laughs> and get back out there because People need to know more about Rich Bedell, for sure. Absolutely. So you, you've said some kind words about him. So I have some kind words from Rich for you. <laughs> so he, he, he sent me what might be the one quote to rule them all. This is a long one. So hang tight. <laughs> and I'm going to read through this. So uh, this is what uh, Rich has to say about Seku. He says, Seku is a drummer's drummer. The care and thought he puts into every aspect of his instrument and playing makes drummers like me in constant awe of him. Here's three things about Seku. First, his playing. I've watched Seku over the many years we've known each other become chameleon-like with each gig he has. You can throw a dart at a dartboard of different genres of music and Seku will attack it with complete comfort and grace as if it's the only style of playing he's ever mastered. But then he swipes left and becomes a complete yin and yang of that style. And you will swear that that's his style, that he's a master of. He will do this over and over again with different gigs and kinds of music. And it blows my mind with adoration. He will play with the same ferocity at a hot, sweaty club in downtown Toronto. Same as a corporate gig at a wedding to recording studio tracking drums to playing in front of 20,000 people at sold out arenas. It doesn't matter. You will get the same Seku each time. Number two his setups. I have for years and years looked at what Seku is doing with his drum setups. He always has the coolest kits and everything is always in the perfect place. I have copied his setup so many times trying to achieve what he achieves and I always fail. He takes such good care of his instruments and it's sexy, goddammit. If you don't believe me, take a look at his new DW kit he recently started using. The most beautiful drums I have ever seen in my life. That's all in caps, I have to tell you. Uh, number three, the human being. Seku is one of the kindest men I have ever met in my life. He has a heart of gold and will take time to make young drummers the center of his universe when he speaks to them. He listens to you and he cares what you're saying. And you feel like you're in a very loving place when speaking with him. Everyone loves Seku. His reputation for playing and his personality is why he will be playing into his 90s. So he's putting that out there for you. <laughs> I really, really love that guy. That's Rich Beto, Finger 11, Saint Asonia. Wow. So, how about that, that? That's definitely the quote to end on quotes. To, I mean, I, I need him to come in and, and uh, you know, make sure he, he does the uh, speaks to my funeral. 
Let's just say that. <laughs> yeah, he'll do he'll do the eulogy. Um, exactly. He'll shut it all down, man. Hey, it's not every day you 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 know at, at noon you get a quote like that to start the day. Dude, that means hey, what a sweetheart. That means so much, man. That means so much. So in preparation for this interview, uh, I infiltrated two Facebook fan groups for Big Wreck. And mm-hmm. I talked to the fans. I, I got to know the fans <laughs> and I asked them if they were doing the interview, what questions would they ask? What, what do they want to know the answers to? So there's lots of questions sprinkled out throughout this interview from the two groups and I'll give them a shout out. And here's the first one. So this is from the Big Rec fan group that has 8,100 fans in it. And this is from Brandy Charlton. Uh, they ask, I would like to know some personal information about Seku outside of the band, upbringing, personal influences, sin number, sin number, address. Uh, what are the people or things in his life outside of music that brings him joy? And just let him know that his talent is phenomenal and that he is loved. So that's from Brandy. So uh, we're going to dive into your history and all that. I guess the part of that question is uh, what are the people and things outside of music that bring you joy? That's a question oh. that I, I wouldn't have asked, but it's a good one. Right. That's a great question for sure. Things with people outside music. Uh, certainly my wife. My wife is uh, not to be a cornball. My wife is, you know, she's my best friend. Um, we've been very close uh, for the duration, um, obviously, of, of our relationship. And, and she has a really unique gift of um, um, taking this really, like, if I care about it, she cares about it and she will to the point where like even with, with drumming like she knows how much i love drumming and my drums and my gear and this girl who cannot play a lick of music to save her life knows what tension rods are what bearing edges are you know what i mean what snare strands are and all these you know all these things that that, that are part of our universe they're are just it's a language that we speak she's picked it up over the years to the point where she will often give me advice on you know, when I'm trying to set something up or pick something or whatever it is, like she just, I can talk to her like I talk to you, you know, about, um, about uh, drumming and stuff. So, um, and it, it in turn then makes me care about her interest and what she loves and, and things like that. So I've gotten to learn about like makeup and stuff like that because she loves it as much as I love drums. Do you, you know? wear so, any makeup on tour in her honor? Or what? You know what? You know, I don't. I'm blessed with really good skin. So she keeps telling me so. So far, so good. But I'd be down. I don't care. I've worn makeup for videos before. I'm in. I'm there for a minute. It's all good. Um, so definitely my <laughs> my, uh, you know, my, my wife is uh, my, my partner. She's uh, when I'm on tour, like she's somebody that I, I wish was like if I had the ability to hire her as as an assistant or something just to bring with, with just just to see the world and see the the things we get to see and experience, the things we get to experience, I absolutely would. Um, um, as far as the interest, I I have been uh, a gamer for for a, a few decades now, um, at different levels. But I've I've always taken a really big interest in the video game uh, industry, not just playing it, but like um, just following the actual business of it and following. Um, what happens with publishers and developers and, uh, you know, and, and just following the, the just the general news of the industry. It's something that I'm pretty passionate about and I know a lot about. 
um, I just find it really fascinating. I don't play as much as I'd like. Um, I don't have a lot of time for it, um, but it's something that I just, I know a lot about. And I have a few friends, you know, who are um, execs at, uh, at Xbox and, and a few friends with PlayStation and stuff. So um, I'm always, it's something I'm always endlessly fascinated by. Um, outside of that, I'm a, I'm a pretty quiet guy. I'm, I, I spend a lot of time um, when I'm not um, working, uh, just a lot of time at home, just relaxing and trying to read more, trying to read a lot of books on self-help. I just read a, a book, a great book called Atomic Habits on creating positive habits in your life that will make some pretty fundamental fundamental changes in how you you view yourself and your your uh, your confidence levels and things like that. So um, that's been um, yeah a new hobby, just trying to read more and and change my diet and things like that. But other than that, I, I work a fair bit, so I especially now things are happening again. So um, yeah, uh, what else? I think gaming. Um, what else? That's a, that's a great book by James Clear. I read it yeah. a, a couple of years it? ago and that yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it again. I just finished it. I'm going to start over and read it again. I think. Yeah. Yeah. He, he helps the, uh, you know, people just want to change habits. They don't realize that it's like, it's not, it's not like the, the, the final thing of like, Oh, I want to stop smoking. It's like all this stuff leading up to it. It's like, you got to change your habits, the way you think about it. It's like repetition. Exactly. It's, giving uh, yourself a reward uh, all those things oh there's an anecdote he has in there about smoking where he says two people are outside taking a work break and that one person they, they both get off for a cigarette and the one man says no thanks i'm trying to quit and the woman says no thanks i don't smoke anymore right so there's two completely different ways of you if you view yourself as somebody who does that thing then you can become a person if you say i am i'm an athlete and then you wake up and you just put on your shoes, you know, and you don't actually get to the gym, but you put on, you've made the first step an athlete would make to working out. And then you just kind of build on that. So those things were really, you know, I don't have to tell you, they were just, they're really eye opening, and uh, they really helped me change. Like I, I have a schedule now in the morning that I, I have a list of things that I do. And when I get them out of the way, I feel way better about my day because I've accomplished so much before I've even stepped out the front door. So yeah, yeah, you're I'm, you're you're basically living the dream with with you know the wife that you love playing music full time, <laughs> video games and reading. Like that that's that's like my perfect life. So congrats. <laughs> there's there's a trophy or something that you deserve. I Thanks. Think. Thank you. Well, you know, there's push and pull to all of it, right? Like there's 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 pros and cons to all of it. But I think the the main thing is just to especially with the with what's happened to all of us with this with this, you know, lockdown is I feel like we've kind of come out of this change as people socially, personally, with things, the amount of anxiety I think everyone deals with as well. Um, it's, it's changed and it's, and it's gotten to be a real beast for me, certainly. So just finding some things that create pattern and balance in life, I find are really good ways to um, feel like you, you can come out on top uh, of of those those anxious things or those depressive things in in a in a given day, if you can, what was the, what was Liney had in the book where if you have what's that that Mark Twain line? If you have two frogs to eat, start with the largest one first. 
And and it's a, it's a line that basically means like if you have a thing you don't want to do, whether it's exercising or whatever it is, get it done first, and then you do the other things. And the hardest thing you've had to do that day is not out of the way. And I find that little thing is really with with the way my brain's been during the pandemic of just waking up every day and playing video games, waking up and watching YouTube or waking up and doing nothing, you know, over the time, it's kind of really affected my, my output and even um, just how I interact with other people and things. So it's been another part of getting back out and doing shows has just been being around people and around fans and, and around bandmates and crew guys and stuff. I'm just working those muscles again, <laughs> you know, like it's been, it's been a while. And another thing about why it's important to do those big, most important things first thing in the morning is your your resolve and your energy levels are at their highest uh, at the start of the day. But also mm-hmm. there's there's something called attention units. Uh, so I'll explain this real quick, mm-hmm. is that a person only has so many attention units before they're, they're burnt out. So let's say everyone wakes up with 10 attention units. And this is something that goes back to like Steve Jobs and all those entrepreneur geniuses is you, you notice that Steve Jobs always had like the same jeans, the same black turtleneck. And it's, if you wake up and you're going through all your clothes and like, oh, what shirt and does this match and this and that, you're using one of your 10 attention units. And, you know, then should I do coffee or should I stop here, Tim Hortons or Starbucks? That's another attention unit. So the genius is take away all decision making. It's the Uh same clothes, the same food, the same everything except for what's important. So they're not using up any energy units. And basically, Uh if you get... Uh, say you get to five o'clock in the afternoon and with everything you've done of going to the gym and all these different things, you have no energy uh, attention units left. So you can't really get into the flow state on that one project. You wanted to write a book and it's just not coming to you. So if you can do those things early in the morning, you're using up your attention units for the things that matter. So that's something that I've read about. And I don't know if that resonates with that. Where's that from? I have no idea. It seems like I'm making it up right now, but over the years, like I've studied millionaires and billionaires for years and Mm -hmm. that's come up before. And they had different examples uh, like Steve jobs with his, you know, turtleneck and and that that was, that was because of attention units that he was saving. So that is wild. I'm going to look into that, man. That is, that seems like something that I would really benefit from. That's really wild. Yes. So, the, the question from the fan that we got from Brandy, it started by asking about your upbringing and personal influences. So let's give the people what they want. Let's go back to the <laughs> beginning. So uh, you're clearly passionate about music. You make a living with music. Uh, mm-hmm. Where does this love of music come from? And do you have an earliest musical memory? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I want to say, so I grew up, uh, just just for some background, I grew up, I was born in the Caribbean. I was born in Trinidad. I came to Canada when I was 11, maybe 12 years old. I can never, I gotta ask my mom, I can never remember. Um, um, so, you know, in Trinidad, I, I grew up in the household where there was a lot of music in the household, but it was a lot of um, a very specific type of music. It was Calypso and Soca, um, a little bit of reggae, I suppose. Um, but it was mostly like, you know, Island music, Calypso and Soka. And so, um, which is funny because those, you know, I, I respect them, but those aren't 
types of music that I've ever played ever on a gig or ever been asked to play. And I, I don't listen to it by myself, but like, um, so I grew up in a household where there was a lot of music playing, just not music that really spoke to me per se. <laughs> um, when we moved to Canada, um, you know, I, I lived in Montreal for about five or six years and then eventually Ottawa for a bit. Um, and I just fell in love with a band. So I didn't have a pull at all to the instrument or any instruments um, until I fell in love with this British band called um, Level 42. Um, and just something, they had a big song called Something About You. Um, <clears throat> um, and a few others after that that were, you know, not as, as colossal as that one. Like, um, but for some reason, I just really, uh, I just connected with that band. I don't know, was it a British pop funk pop, you know, band? And, and I just connected with it. Uh, and I just zeroed in on them. They were my first favorite band, effectively, right? And the lead singer was the bass player. So I was going to play bass because I wanted to jump around in my bedroom. And I, I think I built a bass out of uh, metal siding and like a piece of board and some fishing wire. And when I thought no one was looking, I'd go in the living room at night and I mean, my family knew what I was doing. And I would like crank the stereo and jump around like, used to play slap bass. I just like sing and play slap bass and, you know, be in my own little world. So I did that for a long time, for maybe a couple of years. Uh, and just at, as luck would have it, I, um, well, luck, <laughs> I, was, I was a terrible kid. Um, and I used to get into a lot of fights and start fires and steal. And uh, so just out of frustration, my mom didn't know what to do. So um, in the crib, in the Caribbean, what we do is um, if you are a bad kid, you don't get a tutor, you get sent to a disciplinarian relative who will whip you into shape, <laughs> either literally or figuratively. And in my case, it was my, excuse me, my uncle who lived in Winnipeg, who never laid a finger on me. Um, that, but that's the punishment when someone gets sent to Winnipeg for those. <laughs> you know, sorry, Winnipeg, I love you, but. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so I, I was removed from my friend base and from all my, my stuff and everything. And I spoke with this guy who was very strict and laid the, the law down. You couldn't spend more than five minutes on the phone call, more than 10 minutes in the shower. You had to come home with straight A's. Like it was a whole thing. Um, but all that to, to say, um, I ended up making friends, a couple of friends that school year that were um, drummers. Um, there were the guys who took me and they happened to be drummers, these two guys. I had no interests in the instrument whatsoever. It was just something that they did. And because they were my friends and I wanted to stay uh, tight with them, I started, you know, I stole a pair of mismatched drumsticks from band class. Um, and uh, and I would go home and just listen to my ghetto blaster and listen to the sounds and try to figure out what was going on just so I could come back and be part of the conversations they were having about the first two Red Hot Chili Peppers album or the Pogues or the Sex Pistols or all these bands I'd never heard of and, you know, living in my little Caribbean, you know, household. Um, and, you know, you're, you're, it, this was 15, 16. So, you know, you're still pretty impressionable. So um, I did that for the better part of a year, maybe a little longer, um, just practicing on my knee and 
and doing that and not ever playing on a kit really. And one of them had a kit. So we would go to the, the one guy's house who had a kit and we would take turns playing poorly. And, uh, and they were both trained. They were both, they were both taking music in school and, and I wasn't, I just was teaching myself. And I think one day we were, the three of us were sitting around and we were uh, playing along. I want to say it was like a Bon Jovi song of all things. And we're trying to figure out a film um, going into a chorus and they couldn't figure it out. And I just was like, oh, isn't it this? And they both kind of looked and they're like, and that was the first time kind of a, a light went on where I was like, maybe I'm okay. Maybe I'm good at this. Maybe it's just something like I, the thing is like, Joel, I hated it. Like I, <laughs> couldn't, I couldn't stand it. I just didn't, it was something I did because other people were doing um, until that moment where it was like a light went on and I was like, maybe this is something that I can get better at and be known for, you know? And so from there, it just took off and I just, um, I developed a real passion for the instrument and, and finding guys that I loved who played. And then I went back to level 42 and was like, that drummer is incredible. How did I sleep on this guy? He's amazing. Uh, uh, and, and started trying to, you know, falling down those rabbit holes of just learning to play those the, the way he was playing and a couple of the guys um, that I grew up with, you know, like, uh, you know, a lot of my friends in Winnipeg were like, oh, you're black, you skateboard. So you'd be into Fishbone. And I was like, well, that's racist, but holy fuck, you're right. I am really- <laughs> But accurate. <laughs> but holy shit, I, I guess I am. It's the oh my God. And so that was, you know, Rich spoke to um, just- being a chameleon or just doing different things, that was Fish Fisher, the Durham Fishbone was the guy who kind of uh, made that, put that in front of my face of like, well, here's a guy who will go from playing ska to playing punk, to playing metal, to playing thrash, to playing funk, to playing big band. And when he does every idiom, it, it's, it's, it's actually, it's exactly what Rich said. Like you would think, that's all that guy does for a living. And I always find that really fascinating to just be able to change gears, oftentimes within a song, to change gears really drastically and make it seem like it was the easiest thing in the world. So at, at a very young age, it was something. And also, you know, because it, at the time I was a kid, I was a black kid who was hearing black people play music that I didn't know we could play. I didn't know we could do metal. I didn't know we could do, you know, you know, you know, hardcore and, and, and all this stuff and punk and all that stuff. So it was really eye-opening and it then informed my ear to other styles of music, like getting into Slayer and eventually getting into Slipknot and getting into like, you know, Death Angel and, and all these bands that like, I wouldn't have had a pull to, but now I've, I'm kind of getting a, a crash course by listening to Fishbone and how Fish approaches playing drums um, to what it takes to make these styles of music. Um, so it, it was, you know, I, I crack on Winnipeg, but if, if I if I hadn't moved there, if I hadn't lived with my uncle there, I wouldn't be speaking to you today. Like, I can tell you that very, very easily. Like, I, I had no, no pull. I wasn't one of those kids who played on pots and pans or pillows. I, I never had a pull to the instrument. It just, um, I just fell into it. And I'm so glad I did. It's, you know, it's become, you know, my, I, I, I like you, I'm, I, I love, love music. It is, music is, a life's blood.
you know, I, I really feel that if I didn't have it, I don't know what I would do. So um, being passionate about it and being passionate about different styles of music, whether it's Shaka Khan or fucking, uh, you know, uh, Fire in the Flames by, I forget what that band's called, but, you know, but whatever, like, like they both make me, they both give me goosebumps. They both make me feel the same way for different reasons and being able to recreate that um, is, is so important to me. So, yeah, that's a very long-winded answer, but yeah, that's, that's where I started from. And that's, you know, kind of what drives a lot of my, my motivation when I play. So I, I have a quote here from someone that loves music as much as you do, and mm. that you have bonded with this person over a mutual love of fishbone. So this is from Darren Mr. D. Dumas of the Salad. Ah. He is like Mr. Fishbone. So uh, he says, I believe I believe Seiku and I first met in the early 2000s when I was putting together lineups for the salads, salad gold events. And it seemed like he was playing drums for every other act on those bills. I also seem to recall him visiting HMB on Young Street, where I worked at that time, and we would talk music. We've always connected on our love for the legendary Fishbone, all in capitals. Mm -hmm. uh, and I fondly recall geeking out in conversation with him about our love of 24-7 spies during his short time playing with them. Mm -hmm. Seku is not only one of the most talented drummers in Canada, but also an incredibly friendly and humorous, check out his Instagram account, and super lovely mm -hmm. guy I am thankful to call a friend. I hope to cross paths with him again soon. So Mr. D from the salads. Yeah. That guy knows his stuff, man. That guy knows his stuff. He knows his fishbone. He's, he's the, he's been so fortunate. He's developed a relationship with that entire band over the years that, um, and just from being tenacious, just from constantly being like the, Hey, I'm a fan. And also, I mean, the salads, I don't know if you ever heard them, but Oh my God. I, so he's talking about that HMV on Young Street. Uh, mm -hmm. I, as a teenager, I waited in line for hours at the future shop that's around there to get that's their right. autograph. So I have a picture with the salads where I'm like spiked bleached hair as a teenager. Nice. So that's how far we go back. Wow. Yeah, that was a hell of a band. And their drummer, Grant. Oh my God. That guy just put me to shame. Just his double bass drum and his speed on the instrument was just something else um yeah we uh yeah he, we got to because he i've gotten to know fish over the years he's, he's he knows that there were guys in the band and i've gotten to somehow just through through you know friends and stuff gotten to um know philip fisher who is again like so there's two guys there's two phils there's phil gould from fishbone who was the, the first drummer i kind of paid attention to who just Open the world up, and then there was Fish Fisher, who was the guy at Fishbone who kind of effectively taught me that you know to play different styles is really where it's at, and uh, and subsequently who I end up kind of modeling my 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 let's say heavier the heavier side of things is mostly modeled after after Fisher. Um, so it was a really big deal some years ago to to meet him. I, I'd see him at shows and gone up to him and told him what he meant to me and stuff, which I'm sure, you know, he's been told it a thousand times. He's a, a seminal drummer for a seminal band. So um, over the years, uh, I we've just gotten to know each other and I forget what happened uh, that I actually finally got his phone number or he gave me his phone number. I might have him reached on Facebook or Instagram or something, but um, yeah, I've, I've 
hung out with them. I, I can text them right now, which still blows my mind that I have that relationship with them that, you know, and, and if he comes to Toronto, he's like, Hey, are you in town? Do you want to go get some sushi or something? Like, like it, it blows my mind and just, I'll see that and I'll like screenshot it and like, you know, think about laminating the, the text. Like he's, he's that big a deal to me. So um, getting to take a couple lessons with them has been eye opening. Um, and uh, yeah, just, you know, they say never meet your heroes, but he, he was uh, somebody that uh, I always thought was the, 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 the A and I'm letter C in the alphabet. So meeting him is just, you know, and then uh, anecdotally, not a lot of people know this, but yeah, I did do the 27 spies thing for a hot second for the better part of a year. Um, and <clears throat> then had my gig stolen by fish. Uh, <laughs> How dare he? Which I, I sort of don't mind in, in a way. Uh, um, but um, yeah, the, um, that was, uh, yeah, that was wild. But um but yeah, so it's um, comes full circle, I guess, huh? Yeah, you you mm. you mentioned uh, where you you when you figured out how to play that drum fill that you realized, oh, I might have some talent on this instrument. Mm. But at what point did you realize that maybe you could do this as a career? That hey, I'm good enough <laughs> that I have a skill to offer that people might be willing to pay for, and maybe I can make enough that this is the only thing I do as a career. Yeah. Um... That's a great question. Um, I think there were there were a couple moments. One was a uh, one was the one was a kind of the spark, and the other one was was kind of a push that made me decide to do it. And I was um, playing in Ottawa, uh, and I was just I wasn't doing professionally. I was just playing in like bands, just you know, you in so many bands, so many bands. And um, I had to do a gig of all things for this this rap group. These three kids, like rappers, they weren't of anyone of note. They had no fans. They were just they were doing a battle of the bands, and they'd seen me play with some other bands, and they'd asked me to to play for them for this hip hop battle of the bands thing um, that was actually at a school or something. And the big claim to fame was that uh, this rapper of note at the time from Toronto, this guy named Socrates or Socks was one of the judges. And if you won, I think what the, they, they won like some recording time with him producing them. And uh, so I did this battle of bands. It was terrible. The, bit, the group was terrible, but you know, I did my best. And um, as I was like walking out to like catch a cab with my drums, Socrates actually came running after me. He's like, hey, 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 what's, what's, your, what's your name? Who, who are you? And I'm like, I'm just sick. I'm just, from Ottawa, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, well, you're really good. And I would love to work with you. Um, I'm producing this new artist who's kind of like an old school R&B um, singer that I would love you to play drums for. Her name is Julie Black. Um, and, uh, and she doesn't have anything out yet, but I would love for you to play through. If you're ever down there, just let me know. Um, because I think you, you, know, you could make a go of it if you wanted to do this. And it was the first time someone in the industry who had like videos and Junos and stuff had just unsolicited told me that it was, it was worth taking a stab at. And uh, so I was like, oh. And so from that point, I was always like, am I gonna move to Toronto and be a drummer? Is that what's gonna happen right now? I was probably like early 20s, 22, 21 or something. The prophecy has been told. 
<laughs> Socrates put planted the seed there. And uh, and I remember, and he gave me his phone number and said to call him. And I just was like, you know, when you're young and someone gives you that kind of nudge, it's all you need. You might as well tell me, like, I'm gonna make it. And so I kept thinking about it. And at the time, I was with a a girl, um, and um, we were living together. And you know, life's doing okay. And I was playing again. I think if I remember correctly, I was playing in thirteen different projects like active i'm not talking like people who just I, i'm i was a drummer for sometimes i'm talking people who had gigs all the time 30 and i it was like you know i had i was renting a place with a bunch of people and i remember them telling me like the only thing you do here is you come back home you shower you change your clothes and you leave why are you paying rent like it's this is stupid <laughs> you know like i was just always working and um it got to a point where i remember so this was the other moment where I was like, I got to make a go of this professionally and I got to move to Toronto. But um, uh, I was supposed to go home to visit my grandmother in Trinidad um, for a couple of weeks. And uh, someone called me, one of the bands I was in and said, hey, they're doing a Funkapalooza. They're doing like a, a big funk fest at, at Barry Morris with like seven bands. And uh, can you, would they ask us to do it? Can you do it? And I was like, I would love to, can't go home and train now. Like, ah, oh, it's too bad. Okay, whatever. A couple hours later, another band I'm in calls and said, hey, doing Funkapalooza. They want us to play. And I'm like, oh, it's funny. Such and such just called me. Would love to, can't, blah, blah, blah. Okay, cool. Four or five minutes later, a third band called that I was in. Had to say no. I'll flash forward to the end of the day. Funkapalooza got called off because seven of the nine bands was me on drums because it was such a small fishbowl. You know what I mean? It was, and it wasn't necessarily that, that I was the only guy for the job, but I was the guy that people just called first for the gig and I, and I just took all the gigs. And so I was like, this place is too small. This place is definitely too small. And I need to go somewhere where there's a bigger, um, a bigger, a big bowl where I can work with more people, maybe people of, 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 um, you know, of, of more substance. So I um, I talked to my, my girlfriend time about it and she was, God bless, she was like, we have to go. I was like, well, what are you gonna do? She's like, I'll figure it out, I'll find a job, but we gotta, we gotta go. So we moved here and a friend that I had that lived in Toronto took me out. I wanna say the second night I got here to, to College Street, um, which as you know, for Toronto is like, there's the Orbit Room, there's College Street Bar, there's Revival, there's Vivo, there's, what's the other place down the street? Um, point, point being, there's a bunch of places where you can just go and see people playing music. And he took me out to, um, to see some bands play. And I immediately regretted my decision because I saw some of the illest players. And at the time, like they, they, these, it's funny because these guys have all, you know, it's a small, Scene. I know all of the, not just the drummers, but the band, guys in the bands now and stuff, but I didn't realize it, but I just happened to have walked into four venues where Mark Kelso was playing, you know, who was, who's like, I'm, if, if you don't know Mark Kelso, he's like a legendary Canadian drummer. He's played for like, he's done a ton of movie scores. He's played for Gino Vanelli. He's played for, uh, who, who is a, some big art, Italian artists he's played with. Anyway, he's a phenomenal educator and drummer. He was playing. The next place I walked into, um, 
Shumaka Ali was playing drums. Shumaka played for the Gap Band and the SOS Band and Al Green and stuff. So I'm watching this legendary, died in the wool R&B legend. And I've never heard of any of these guys before. But so to me, they're just guys I'm walking and seeing playing the most insane shit I've ever seen. You realize you know, there are levels to this game. There are levels to this game. The next, the next place was uh, uh, Davide DiLorenzo, who's played with a bunch of Canadian legendary people. And Davide's become one of my favorite drummers. He's one of these guys who plays just what the music calls for until you need him to turn it on, and then he's, he will melt your face. Uh, and then Randy Cook was at some other place. And I was like, yeah, this was a mistake. I am not any of these guys, and I should not have been here. I'm going to die on the vine. <laughs> you know, like, a, um, and as it turned out, that that just makes you um, want to be better. It makes you want to up your game and up your stock so that you can play with these people um, who are now your contemporaries, you know, and, and you can play um, stuff just to hold your own and tread water. <laughs> so, uh so yeah so those were kind of those are the, the, the moments at the beginning that kind of made me go like okay maybe i can i can do it I just i had some really good um feedback from people and from my situation that kind of um told me that it was safe to make a, a jump you know to that professionally do, do you think that back when you were playing with like up to 13 bands at once do you think that helped you to develop your drum skill quickly because the, you know, the 10,000 hour theory, it's like you're able to squish in 10,000 hours faster than most because it was like a 13 times multiplier, you know? I wonder, you know, I, I don't know if it did or not. I, I do know back then because I was playing so much, I was pretty, lack of a better word, I was pretty arrogant, not outwardly arrogant to people, but internally I was, I, I felt like I could take whoever's gig because I sort of was doing it and because people were just calling all the time. So I don't think I, all that to say, I don't think I was um, pushing or learning a lot because I was, I was just people hiring me for what I did and who I was. Um, I think moving to Toronto really sharpened me because I was playing with people who were of a level I'd never seen before. And I was seeing guys who were playing things that were like, Oh, i better get my shit together and learn this stuff because it's kind of the norm. It's expected that, you know, these types of, you know, have these tools in your, in your toolbox. So I think more than anything, it was Toronto that really, um, really ha had me learning stuff quickly. I, I got lucky enough to play with an artist named, named uh, Ivana Santilli, who was with uh, a band called Bass's Bass, um, who had done, a, they were just like a household name back there. And, and Ivana was, People were very much waiting for her uh, her debut albums, which I got to be on, and and then she had a single that was a drum and bass song that was blowing up the radio up over here um, for the better part of a year, um, and so we toured a lot. So you know, just and then playing with just different bands that really had me um, just learning things from people that were like, okay, this is not a joke. You are not the you are not the biggest fish in a small pond anymore, and you can't get by on, on the things that you think were enough. Now you have to learn, you know, at the time I was doing a lot of R and B gigs and um, that style of playing that, that quest love D'Angelo style of that's, you know, that lazy type of R and B way of playing was, was a new thing that people were getting into. And I was turning left and right and seeing other guys plugging it off me. Like, I don't know how to do this because it doesn't make any sense. 
putting your kick drum behind the beat and your hi-hat ahead of it and your snare. Like, but I figured it out because <laughs> if I didn't, I definitely wouldn't, have, my phone would stop ringing, you know? So Toronto really played a big part in, in helping me grow quickly as a, as a drummer. So you mentioned seeing all these amazing drummers in Toronto. I have a quote here from a Toronto drummer that's gone on to become one of the most iconic, legendary drummers in Canada. This is from Glenn Milcham of Blue Rodeo. So <laughs> he says, Seku is a fantastic drummer. His playing just seems to flow out of him effortlessly. He's also hilarious. This keeps coming up uh, to follow <laughs> on social media and very candid about challenges he faces as a pro musician. Like in a recent video where he talked about a crisis of confidence that he went through and how he dealt with it. When someone plays with the certainty he does, but can still be frank about dealing with his insecurities as a musician, he's sharing a really important lesson. Big respect to Seku. So that's Glenn Milcham from Blue Rose. Wow, man. You're killing me with these, with these uh, accolades from these people there. I mean, these are all people that I think really, really, really highly of. You know, a lot of some, I haven't, Glenn and I have only crossed paths a few times, but there's an instant kinship there. And I have such a love for the stuff he's done with Blue Rodeo. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, like with Darren, like we, we you know, we're, we're good friends and we've hung out a bunch and talked fishbone a bunch, but, um, you know, it's, it's nice to, it's nice to know when you're, um, when you're just working your butt off that you can look up and, and that, that kind of, that's the impression that you've left with people. It's always nice to, to hear that from, from people. Um, as far as the struggles and stuff, I, I made a video a little while ago about um, performance anxiety because it's something I've dealt with for a long time. Again, speaking to just being in situations where you're with these incredible A-list musicians and you um, you just want to do your best, but you you don't think you're the best. You know, you either whether it's suffering from imposter sy syndrome or just being insecure about your playing in general. We're just seeing guys who just do a, a style of thing that you're like, I couldn't in a million years play that way. You know, it, it'll get to you. And um, and there's a lot of that in Toronto, as it would be in, in, in most any place I'd imagine. But um, Toronto is very concentrated for the amount of talent you can just turn around and see. Or even just share a stage with if uh, like from the keyboard player, from the singer, from the bass player. So um, it can get to you after a while. And for me, it's something I've dealt with a lot over the years, um, especially with the proliferation of um, social media. You know, you can, I made a video just talking about it. You can just go on YouTube or go on Instagram or TikTok. And if you want to spend five minutes on the can looking at your phone, you will see three dozen drummers that you've never heard of who are 10 years younger than you, who will play things that just blow your mind, you know? And that's that trip to the can that day. Like tomorrow, it's a different, you know, it's it's insane what technology and, and social media have kind of brought to our doorstep. And it's incredible to watch. It's fun to watch. It's It can be inspiring to watch for sure. But it is daunting and really, really intimidating. And I don't care who you are, uh, you'd be hard pressed to not feel like you're not good enough. Um, if you ingest too much of it, which I think we all do, it's just 
especially with the pandemic. Again, going back to that, we're locked up and we have nothing to do but spend time on our phones and our computers looking at this stuff. I know I did. So, um, you know, it, it really affected my playing and affected when I would sit behind the kit, I would um, feel just like if I have a, 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 like a basket full of stuff that I can play, I, I could only pull out like two things, you know, out of the basket until I would go back and look at a video of myself playing that same performance and be like, why didn't you play this? Why didn't you play? You can do this in your sleep. But because I'm so anxious and worried about doing the wrong thing and so critical of what I'm doing um, at a given moment when I'm behind the kit, that not only was I not enjoying anything I was doing, but I also wasn't representing myself very well. I wasn't playing all the stuff I could play because I was so worried about making mistakes. So um, yeah, I just made a video talking about, I, I, I had done a, we had done a show um, uh, a month and a half ago somewhere. And then I'd gone to a bar afterwards with, with my wife and um, uh, a, a drummer came up to me and was like, hey man, big fan of yours, da, 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 and started talking and said, like, what do you, what do you do when you feel, did you ever feel nervous? Do you ever feel, cause you don't look like you do, but when you did say, what did you do? And in talking to him, I realized like, oh, this is something that, and just and saying like, dude, I, feel, I was nervous on that stage you're talking about. I was nervous then. I played a fail now and the whole time I'm playing, I'm critical of everything. I'm like, oh, that beat felt a little rushed or that feel was, you, you need to play that there. Just being really critical and tearing myself apart at every moment. It was such a fabric of, my playing, the noise in my head when I play it, that I didn't realize that it was the same way for a lot of people. So I made that video and was really blown away. Joelle, like I can't tell you, like it's, it's the response I've gotten from people who've come up to me or DM'd me or left comments or whatever, just saying like, thank you for making that. Like I thought I was the only one, you know? And, and you hear that cliche all the time. Like, you know, I thought I was the only one, but I was blown away that it was such a, a common feeling with everybody. Um, and so for me, one of the things I had to do was just to, to talk about it, you know, to, to people and be honest about it. And then say like, hey, one of the things that we can do about this is we can maybe try looking at that stuff less. Like it's fun to look at it. I get it. It's amazing to look at. And, and to laugh at and to be inspired by if that's your thing, if you can be inspired by it. But I feel that we don't have a shut off valve when it comes to ingesting that stuff. And if that's the case, it's going to affect how you view your output in the world. It's gonna make you depreciate what you're bringing to the table. And it's gonna make you insecure about what you can do, what, what you haven't done yet that you can, that you're able to do, you know? So I find that, um, just ingesting that stuff like now when I look at it, I look at it for maybe a couple of minutes and I go, oh my God, God damn it, Larnell, Jesus. Okay, that's enough of that. <laughs> you know, and I move on with my day and I go and I teach myself to play double bass drum pedal or work on something that I can a goal I can achieve. So um I think I think one of the reasons why that video uh resonated with so many people is normally when someone is in a band like 
you know, Big Wreck is a multi-platinum band, all these hit singles over the decades on the radio, playing big shows. It's normally those people are like put on a pedestal and, you know, they have the rock star vibe of like, you know, I'm up here on stage and you're the peasants down there. And this goes back to, you know, Led Zeppelin when it was like the rock stars of rock stars. And so I think when they see someone that's in, in that class of success, of rock star, uh, that person is being transparent. That person's being vulnerable, uh, even though that's needed and appreciated, we don't see that very often. So I think that's mm-hmm. maybe that's why it, it stood out where, you know, people, people that are, are talented, but haven't achieved anywhere near the level of success you've achieved, you know, they're thinking, you know, am I good enough or all these people are better, but they can't imagine that someone like you is thinking that as well. So. And it's wild because like, I, I even had, I mean, our bass player, Big Red, was like, dude, I saw the video. He goes, we got to talk. He goes, I had no idea. He goes, I feel that way all, I feel that way tonight. I feel that way all the time. So it's wild that it's like just people around people that, you know, of all different walks of life and, and, and levels and stuff, you know, go through it. And, and I, and I, again, I, not to, you know, whip a dead horse too much, but I really do feel that the amount of time we spent online in the last couple of years has exacerbated that, has made it worse. It certainly has for me, you know, and it makes you give up, you know, and it's, it's just sad because it doesn't, it doesn't have to be that you compare yourself to other people. It, it just, it doesn't, it's actually better if you don't, I'm, I'm finding that I'm doing stuff now that like, I probably stupidly, I very, I'm going to uh, admit something I've not really ever admitted to anyone before, but, when I was coming up in, in the early 90s, or, well, when, well, sorry, when I was playing in the late 90s and early aughts when the R&B thing was showing up, when you had all these guys playing with these crazy, you know, playing over vocalists who, who were totally fine with them, like playing fills over the bar line, all these crazy arrangements and stuff, like I saw it happening and it was really exciting. And I tried it for a hot sec and then realized it was just, a bit outside my skill level or that, that it was something that I'd have to really dedicate my time to getting good at. And I didn't do it. And I told myself at the time that it was a phase <laughs> that it would pass. And that, and at some point people like me and, and people who play like me would be back to being recognized for the things we brought to table rather than trying to sound like this guy for Mary J. Blige or that guy for, you know, Destiny's Child, whoever it was. And I did that for a long time. And when I realized I was wrong and it wasn't a phase and it was the way that music and that style of drumming was moving, it was too late for me. I, it was too late to go back and try and, or I thought it was too late, but it, it, maybe it wasn't, but I thought I'd missed the boat on it. And um, so I've been living in a world for a number of years where, and I'm not just talking R&B, like it's the same with, with metal and it's the same with like jazz. It's there's certain things that I just didn't, I got intimidated by and rather than trying to learn more about it and open myself to it, I told myself to stick to my, my ways of being. So the last few decades have been really tough because it's been, there, there have been guys who I, I am better in certain regards where I can play, let's just say more in certain regards, but they have a certain thing, whether it's double bass drum or whether it's our time signature, or whether it's playing a certain R&B style, whatever it is that they can do in their sleep that I can't do that I'm now hobbled by because I didn't take the time to, you know, to figure it out. So it, it, it's good to be in a, 
I'm, I'm 49 as of last month. And, you know, I'm playing in a band now. I've kind of scaled back. The, the pandemic kind of made all my gigs evaporate. Most of them. I still get called for, for things, but it's by and large, I use it as an opportunity to kind of scale back and say, okay, well, now that I don't have to play all this stuff, let me focus on Big Rec. Let me try and make that what I do. I'll still do the occasional recording on this thing for, for people and stuff. And I do commercials and jingles and things like that. But as far as music goes, let me commit to one band and see what that does for me musically. So I said goodbye to Serena and my other commitments. And I've just kind of been focused on Big Rec. And I've noticed that I've been doing way more growing and just not trying to compare myself to this guy who plays that style of music with this guy who plays this style or, you know, Larnell is a good friend. Like Larnell, you know, he, we've shared gigs. Like I, he's, I've called him to do gigs that I can't do. And I'm not, I'm nowhere near Larnell's level. Please don't, don't take this that I'm saying that. I, don't, don't get it twisted. <laughs> don't get twisted. Nobody's on Larnell's level. He's one of the most beautiful, incredible players I've ever, ever heard. Um, but, um, you know, um, like not having to think about that stuff and just thinking about what I bring to the table with Big Rec and um, just what the music calls for and how I can best serve the songs and, and amplify what, what happens off the records when a live show is kind of my main focus now. And I found that I've been doing a lot more growing. I taught myself after a number of years of, of trying and giving up, I've taught myself to play double bass drum fairly competently, you know, I've, um, I've, I've just, I've learned more tricks um, just because I've been focused on being a better me for the band that I'm in rather than trying to be Larnell or this guy or that guy or that guy or that guy, you know? Hmm. So uh, I, you, you mentioned that you're now focused on your drumming with Big Rack. There's uh, a new album on the way. It's broken down into EPs. So hmm. I, I'd like to go through um, quickly go through all the amazing artists that you've played drums for and then spend a, a lot of time at the end on Big Wreck, if that's okay with you. Absolutely, for sure, yeah. Okay, awesome. So uh, in 2001, you started playing drums for Cardinal Official, another one of these Canadian hip-hop legends, mm. you know, uh, groundbreakers. I saw him play in Ottawa in a in a dance club about 15 years ago. And then I saw him at Celebration Square in Mississauga for Canada Day, maybe four or five years ago. And his his setup was he had a drummer, a bass player, him and a DJ. Uh, was that the same setup that he had when you were playing with him? And what was your favorite part of playing with him? Man, that guy brings the energy and knows how to get a crowd going. Dude, I, I mean, that was so... I was his first drummer and the band he had with, with me and it was the first band. And I think I remember the lightning strike moment of him realizing that that was the way to go. Because I think at the time I, I got to get through a, a guitar player friend who was, who, who knew him. And, and he, when, when Cardinal mentioned he wanted to maybe work the band, he wasn't sure. You know, I think he tried it once before somewhere and he just hated it. Uh, and it was because the, the drummer played really loud, I was told. Um, but um, I think at the time, the roots were fairly, you know, prominent. Uh, and I think he wanted that energy. We were, we were doing a, a tour opening for Shaggy. <laughs> well, Shaggy. Yeah, Shaggy. Mr. Lova Lova. That's right. 
a multi um, multi uh, month or a week rather tour opening for him, and he wanted to put a band together. Or I think no, sorry, let me rephrase it. He had to put a band together. The 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 the, the only way Shaggy could bring him out, the management told him was like, you have to have a band. You can't go up there with tracks the DJ. So he was like, fine. So he spoke to my guitar player friend who then contacted me. And I think we, we all, we rehearsed before he came in just to get stuff sounding just right. And when he came in and saw what we had done, he was, it was like, like I said, like a light switch was like, this is what I gotta do. If I really wanna bring this type of energy, this is what I gotta do. And man, I had seen him play before and saw him, you know, as a rapper on stage, just with a couple hype men and a, and a DJ, but his energy with a band just went through the roof. Like he was just vibing off it. He had us doing some James Brown style shots and things like that, which he thought was just the most amazing thing. He could like, give me a two, that, that. You know, all he just, he loved <laughs> the flexibility and the freedom of that. So we did that tour. That tour was funny because we, we started the tour. I brought all my drums and they were like, oh yeah, no, no, no. You're not, you're not setting up your kit. You're going to play Shaggy's drummer's drum kit, which at the time was a problem because that guy had, he, 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 he was a Rasta dude. And for some reason he played a setup that was just like, it was like, I don't know, a mounted eight time and like a 12 and a 14 floor. His cymbals were like, I remember having like almost straight in my hand to hit cymbals. Was he, he seven foot one or what? He was a really tall guy, but he also just liked playing like this. His ride was like up here and his, so, and they were like, and you can't touch anything except your seat height. Change your seat height, that is it. Put your snare on there, that is it. So I had to work with, and, and you know, playing some fairly nimble stuff behind Cardinal. But, um, so it was it was a bit of a, a mind fuck having to just constantly be like holding on for dear life every time I played. But playing with him was amazing. He just had such a respect for the musicians he worked with and just such, as you pointed out, like just such an energy level that then turned around and fed us, you know, to, um, to just give our best every night. Um, and then from there, we did a handful of events. I think there might've been like a much music, something or other and a, and a few other shows, but we didn't, we didn't do much more outside of that, that one tour and a, and a handful of dates, but it was, yeah, it was really fun. I'm, I'm glad he saw the light about having a band on stage because, yeah. um, you know, I've been to a ton of concerts, a lot of hip hop concerts. I was just at Blues Fest for the last 10 days in Ottawa and there's a lot of right. hip hop acts. And um, whenever it's just one guy that comes out with a mic and that's it, like there's just tracks, I'm I'm always disappointed. It's like I'm looking for some level of musicianship oh. and it's like they're they're oh. talented on the mic, but it's like just staring at one guy the whole time it's, it's not enough. So, you, you know, no. the greats like Jay-Z has a band when he's on tour and, you know, seeing mm. someone like the roots where they're all incredible musicians to me, again, like when you said you saw those incredible drummers in Toronto and there's levels to this game of drumming to me, yeah. there's levels to the live show of hip hop artists right. when they have just tracks or one step up is they have a physical DJ with them. And then the next level up is they have a, a legit band playing. And you know what? Some, bands are doing i know drake did this for a while i was talking to adrian his drummer some artists are actually going to they like they want the energy of the band but they actually don't want to see the band they want the whole show to be like a, a, a video wall they throw stuff on so drake will actually put the band under the stage like so an the orchestra drummer, 
yeah. So like directly the stage, the drummer's there, the keyboard player. I think he's just down to drum and keyboard player now. I think he's turfed his guitar and bass player. So it's just a drum and keyboard playing a whole bunch of tracks and just crazy, you know, monstrous playing, you know, when, when it comes calls for it. But that's not all you see on stage is, is the corresponding um, video screen show to go with it. So they're they're taking the energy of the the the, the feeling of it, but but and re- replacing the visual of it with like, you know, time code basically. <laughs> so it's a different time, man. Yeah. How old are you, by the way? I'm 37. Okay, you're old enough to to know of a time where like, yeah, like we'd go out and see show shows. You know, show like... shows. I miss show <laughs> shows. Yeah, I just saw Ja Rule on stage standing by himself. He was actually surprisingly good, to be honest. And he he can yeah. sing, even though like he's he's a rapper and he has like the raspy voice. He's got a really good pitch. And he he is so jacked. Like there's gotta be steroids going on. Like he is what's that you know, he's an artist he can use let him do steroids he's an artist oh yeah he does he doesn't have to do any testing for the ufc so why not yeah, yeah. exactly that's funny Yo, it's funny that you mentioned him we just completely tangentially like but but we um we did a show in london where the following night i was looking at the bill and it was 112 tlc jaw rule uh all these like these massive acts from from the aughts from the early like 2000s like all crammed into a bill together like uh i wish i could remember who else was on it, but it just, so like- so i just saw so at blues fest it was uh jaw rule headlining tlc and bone thugs and harmony bone thugs harmony that was the other act and there were a couple more and i was like what is going on like how are you just cramming these people in there and I was talking to our manager about it. Apparently, the promoter gets that, that you can buy that package of those guys. And you can do those shows every year. And then they're, it's, I don't want to say what the money is. It's each artist does not make a lot of money, but they all make the exact same amount of money. And everything else is taken care of. They just show up. There's no band, as you saw. It's just tracks and then maybe a DJ. And they go up there and a lot of them have like maybe one hit. So they're, they're, the set is like a half hour, you know? And it's like all these people who were like, you could not throw a stick without hearing about one of these artists, you know? And then here they are like playing for, I'll just say decently under 10K, like swell under 10K per act to, to do those shows. But apparently they, they, the, the, the promoters rake in a ton of money. Those, on those they're uh, they the promoters got those bulk deals going on just yeah bulk them all together crazy? and send them out to casinos and you know. yeah yeah so th- so they make the, what they make at each show and they obviously it's not a lot per show but they do a bunch of these shows and by the end of it by the end of a week you know they've made a decent you know chunk of change so anyways yeah. i just thought that was fucking fascinating no i i hear you uh so so after cardinal i uh, between 2002 2004 uh, you played drums for edwin so uh, for those that don't know edwin was the singer in the multi-platinum band i mother earth and then after that went on to have a platinum career as a solo artist uh, I-, I just saw the i mother earth reunion in ottawa mm-hmm. where they had the band they had both singers brian and right. edwin yeah. And they, they played songs from all four albums and it was amazing. So yeah. was there 
any kind of an adjustment period to go from the hip hop with Cardinal to, to the rock with Edwin? Uh, no. So in addition to playing R&B and hip hop, my first bands were, well, I wouldn't say a little rock band, but it was a band with destroyed guitars. Let's just say that. And, and, and certainly in, uh, like in punk bands. It was my first band. So I've used, I'm used to playing hard and playing loud rock stuff. Um, as well as the other stuff that, you know, I had been known for playing at the time, which was more R&B and electronic stuff like drum and bass and house music and things. I did have a real love for, for playing heavier stuff. Um, the Edwin stuff that I played when, played in, um, was decidedly more soft. Uh, the soft rock's a bad term because that's an actual thing. It was more pop rock, let's call it. It, it certainly wasn't... Um, it was loud, but it certainly didn't have the, the, the teeth that something like, you know, Big Wreck or, or, or Big Sugar or something, or, or even I'm Mother Earth, let's just say, had. Um, we did do some I'm Mother covers in that band, but, um, but, uh, but by and large, the album that, that I was a part of and the songs we were, were promoting were more poppy rock. So it was much of an adjustment. Um, it was the first time I had done rock touring and seeing that world, which was which was wild and eye opening. Um, it was different it was, from the hip hop tour with Cardinal. Very, very, very different. In, in yeah. what way? Just the um, the crews, the uh, just the audiences. The I mean, it was the first time just between you and me. I, my wife was in the ears, but the first time I'd seen the girls' side of playing in rock band, like. Edwin, you know, Edwin's a beautiful man. What can I say? He's a beautiful man. There's a lot of beautiful women who, who, who came out to shows. And so it was the first time seeing that stuff. And I think it was the first time I had a drum tech. It definitely was the first time I had a drum tech. And so... Um, moving on up. Yeah, moving on up, exactly. I had someone changing my head and setting stuff up for me. And it was mind-blowing. And just, you know, putting in the work every night to, like, uh, just play in arenas and play in in um, way bigger venues than the clubs I've been playing in my whole life. Um, so uh, it was, yeah, it was eye-opening in that regard for sure. Yeah. And then in in 2002 to 2005, you played drums for Thornley. So we're getting a connection in here with Ian Thornley mm -hmm. of Big Rec. And you actually played the drums on the debut album come again and this is mm -hmm. where i come in as a fan so i was i was about 17 18 when that came out and i remember mm -hmm. i was a huge fan uh the four singles so far so good come again easy comes and beautiful that album i remember listening to it um the sound was incredible like just the mm -hmm. sound of that album is incredible and I actually have a question here from a fan that has to do with that sound. So this is from a, a fan. Scott Morgan says, what's the secret to get such a kick you in the teeth drum sound uh, that you have on the come again, Thornley album? It, it is a, it is a dense crunchy sound on that. album. Yeah. Well, um, you know, enough times passed. I can pull the curtain back on that. Um, I, that was, in terms of performing, that was not a fun album to make. I did not enjoy recording that those, those songs. I, I love the songs, but um, the way that we tracked those songs was not the way that um, I, I originally understood we were going to track them. So we had done two or three weeks of pre-production 
with the songs. I just rehearsed them every day, eight hours a day. And I had, you know, my EW kit with my well-tuned DW toms and <coughs> my cymbals and stuff and everything. So I, I, used, I was used to playing a certain way and playing ideas I had for parts with my full drum kit and my drums tuned, you know, like drums. Um, and then we went in and I discovered um, Gavin Brown, who produced the album, who is a phenomenal producer. Of, he's done like Three Days Grace and Big Sugar. He's, he's a also a drummer, right? So you have yeah, also a really good drummer in his own way. Um, he had some very decidedly different ideas on how to track stuff. And he had just come off the success of the Three Days Grace stuff. So kind of what he wanted to do was what we were going to do because we wanted to have that kind of success. Um, and what that meant was recording on a mishmash Frankenstein kit of, I want to say it was like a 90, and you know, this is how we, this is how you track. So it is what it is. I'm, I'm not really, I'm not knocking the gear at all, um, but a 1940s 24 inch lady bass drum with no front head. I think I had a 14 and my setup was like DW, like, you know, 10, 12, 15, 16, 24, uh, my snare was like a 14 by seven or something, you know, all fresh heads and yada, yada, yada. So going in, recording on Lady with no front head, a shorter stack, um, kick drum, a Rogers 14 by 14 floor tom as my mounted tom with a whole bunch of tape on. It was more tape on the drum head than head. A 16 inch Ludwig, a 16 by something Ludwig floor, um, with no bottom head on it. Again, a bunch of tape all over it. Um, a, a host of different snares, obviously. And overdubbing all the symbols afterwards. So uh, all of a sudden, now all the parts I'm playing where I'm playing fills, you know, gone. Now I'm playing not 10, 12, 15, 16, 14, 16, 24 or whatever with no front head, no hi-hat, no crashes. I can't write on the crash of the choruses. So I've got to recontextualize and reconfigure all my parts now. So, you know, and then go back in and play the hi-hat. And then if I'm crashing on the on the chorus for coming in, I have to remember now the fill that I'm playing starts on the end of beat three, so I have to come off the crash because I wouldn't be playing, you know, just completely threw everything out of the window for me. And then what we were going to do on top of that was uh, a lot of those drum sounds for samples. So we used the drums for the girth, right? Which is why I didn't have to sound particularly lively. But then we went in and I think at the time, God, I'm telling so many Tales out of school here, but I think it's just enough times past. <laughs> this is the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain, <laughs> the magician giving his tricks. I like it. This is what the fans want. Give us the goods. Yeah. He had a kit pack, a sample pack of Jose from Incubus's uh, DW kit that I guess he'd known the engineer for some of the Incubus sessions. And he'd given him this pack of all his DW toms, well tuned. and different snare drums and we use those and we layered those with the drum sounds we had and that was the drum sound you hear is is the performance is real but the drum sounds are all flown in to give it that and so the reason we were doing the hi-hats and the cymbals afterwards 
because at the time Gavin's style was to record the drums with a lot of room mics. I want to say we had like five room mics. Um, and the problem with, ha- with hitting cymbals with a lot of room mics is that you can guess, hit that crash and it's going to stick around right through the verse <laughs> from, from the chorus, you know? Um, so the idea is to keep the drum sound, do the cymbals afterward with a different miking technique, which which made sense in the end in terms of how we wanted the drums to um, sound on, on the record. But in terms of playing, it it shot me in the foot. Like there's there's stuff I'm playing on there where I'm literally just trying to make stuff up as I'm playing it because I the thing I was going to play incorporated cymbals and drums, you know, at the same time or incorporated more drums or smaller drums or more melodic drums. So it, it wasn't a pleasant experience for me. I, I learned a lot and, and I, I knew enough at the time, having done a bunch of sessions by then that like my thinking with tracking is like, don't say like, I could have given them a thousand reasons why it was a bad idea, why it wouldn't have worked, but I've done that before. And when something goes wrong, when someone's not happy with the finished product, the first person they look at is you because they think if Seiko had just tried that idea, this would have sounded, you know, better. So my, my feeling has always been, for a long time, it's always been like, just try it. Just, if you, even if they want you to play the, the snare on the one and threes and the kicks and two and four, and you know it's a bad idea, try it. Because it's not until you play it that people realize why it might not work or, which has happened as well, like it might work and you might be totally wrong. You know what I mean? And it might be, it might be the perfect thing for the song. So my, my feeling was always like, as much as I was railing against playing without symbols, you know, and over and afterwards, I'm just like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to put my best foot forward and really try and see this through because I don't want to be the reason that this doesn't work, you know? And in the end it worked out. It, it um, my feelings aside of how it felt to play it, it served the record and, and hearing back again, decades left people like you and other people who are fans of the, um, of the, the album and the songs, like it, it, it worked out, right? It, it worked out. Again, I'll, I'll tell a little school out tale that has nothing to do with me, but like that Three Days Red Grace record, I forget the name of it, but the one that blew them up, he recorded those drums, those were V drums. You know Rich, what I mean? Rich those... was saying on uh, The Grace of Blue Skies that it was V drums as well. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you just do what you need to do to, to, to make the thing work. And you have to kind of be able to put aside your um, personal preferences and dislikes for, for, for the end result. If it didn't work out in the long run and we had to go back to, the, to, the, to, to my setup, I would have been like, see, you know, but in the long run, it worked out and people were happy. So it's good. I didn't, I just, for me, it's not, there were ideas and uh, that I would like to have, have, have um, put on there and and there was some hesitation certainly in my playing I feel I can hear that came from just not having the confidence of you know um that setup so yeah was was that the biggest album that you had played on up until that point and was that the first time you heard you you heard you heard uh your songs on the radio songs that you had played on um not the first time I heard songs I'd played on. Um, I, I've had some, again, the Ivana thing was, uh, with the drum and bass thing was, uh, was a really big song. I got, it, that was the first song I'd heard on the radio. And I remember just 
there was a point where it was on so often that I remember and the video I was in that was was almost on all the time. So I, I do remember hearing the songs and being like, oh yeah, that again. And being like, holy crap, I'm I'm over it. I'm overhearing myself on the radio. It's fucking awesome. Like that, <laughs> you know, that, that was a milestone for me. Like, oh yeah, this again. Um, but certainly the at the time it was definitely the biggest thing I'd done. We, we had um we had uh, the song was number one for a few weeks, and then iTunes it was number one for a month or so. And it even it even broke through to the U.S. Wasn't it a top it twenty single in the U.S.? Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. Um, we we got to do like the, the Tonight Show, uh, which I I've never done anything like that in my life. And then we you know here we are on the Tonight Show playing with Jay Leno, like playing for. Jay Leno and and my nerve is just going through the roof, you know. No, I didn't have a click, so I just remember telling myself, "You're gonna feel like you're playing this too slow, but play it slower than you want to play because your drone's gonna be jacking through your veins." And I'm so glad I did. I listen back to that performance now, and it's still a little. It's like five clicks too fast, but at the time I remember being like, "It felt like this <laughs> when it's like this," you know. Cause I was so nervous. So that was definitely the biggest thing. Yeah. It, it, it um, it was definitely the, the first time I thought I, I felt for a fact, a thing I was in was going to go, you know, we had, we were doing a bunch of, we did like six months of touring opening for Nickelback. We were on their label. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a big Nickelback guy, certainly, but they were very, very kind to us and they took us to the States and, all across Canada playing. So it, it was, yeah, it was, it was definitely the, a, a, a break, a watershed moment in terms of the stuff I had done it was the biggest thing at the time for sure. Yeah. And uh, you know, Nickelback was one of the biggest bands in the world and that label 604 records was, mm-hmm. was hot at that time. I mean, yeah. they, they had, uh, they were associated with default. They had theory of a dead man. They had Mariana's right. trench uh, on right. and on. It seemed like everything that they put out was, was a hit. So I, yeah. I think, I think it was probably a good, good home for, uh, for Thornley at that point. And then, uh, there's with big wreck, there's some Chad Kroger, uh, connections there as well later on, right. Mm-hmm. There's a, a, a newer single that's charted, uh, that features Chad Kroger. We'll jump into that in a second. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to dive into your time with Ben Kenny of Incubus. Uh, Incubus mm-hmm. is uh, one of my favorite bands. Before that, I have some kind words for you. It's been a while since I read some kind words. So oh, I'm uh, starting to wilt over here. Dude. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, so this is from uh, Julian Taylor of Staggered Crossing, who's an amazing right. singer songwriter. I was a fan of uh, Further Again back in the day with Staggered Crossing right. and He's after a 20 year career, he got his first two Juno nominations last year to show you like going the distance and, um, you know, keeping the vision and then everyone else comes around in the end. So uh, Julian says he's an absolute beast of a drummer and a beautiful soul. I love him as a musician and as a man, and I've always wanted to share the stage with him. So maybe someday you'll share the stage. Hopefully. Yeah. Hope so. He, um, I was telling you this earlier, but when I moved to Toronto, you know, being a black person that plays rock music or certainly heavier music is, uh, you don't see a, a lot of other brothers, you know, doing it and, and doing it without any kind of like, you know, sometimes you would see some guys playing in the, in the rock world as a singer or as a rapper or as a drummer, but they would tend to bring over those 
flourishes from that R&B style, the, the, the more, let's say, Black music style into that rock field. And Julian, I always kind of gravitated more to guys who didn't do that. Guys who were just like, no, this is what the music calls for, so this is what I'm playing. And Julian was that, was was the first person I ever saw. I was like, this guy's just stacked across him. Like, he's, he's, he's road tested, you know, and you just, and the songs he's writing come from a very dedicated place and and like there's he's not say i don't know how to say this without saying it this way so i'll just say it but he's not he's not cashing in being black to play music he plays it has nothing to do with the music he creates and i've always always um thought of him as a as a real as a real goat for that you know as a real real legend for that um and yeah just such a performer what a singer what a player like just a, a real great dude i i can't say good things about him yeah he's uh he's got a, a new album coming out i believe in october so uh, I, I i'll keep an eye out for that one lots of great music on the yeah. way so um we have a fan question sent he, in here about uh, ben kenny uh he says this is from aaron collins he says all canadian bands that you've played with and then incubus's bass player how did that happen <laughs> It is kind of a weird blip on there, Mr. Right Worldwide <laughs> with the incubus here. So that that's a, a funny story. I haven't told many people this, but it's a it's a very, you know, Joel. I'll tell you, man. Like my life, a lot of things in my career have come across my plate because I've I've been ready for them. But a lot of things have just been luck. Like just honestly, I've just I've had a very lucky career, and I, I that's not to say that like. That's all it took because you can be as lucky as you want, but if you aren't, if you can't capitalize on a on a on an opportunity, when luck puts it in front of your face, it doesn't doesn't mean anything. So, um, but with Ben, so check this out. So, I was meeting a girl to go see a movie downtown at the remember, well, it's is it still there the the, um, the Scotiabank movie theater on. Queen and or John and Richmond that find much music. So I was meeting a girl there, and uh, it was super cold. She was late, and so I went into the HMV. There was an HMV on Queen, uh, where, where just near there. It was an HMV music store uh, near there, just to stay warm. And as it happened, the girl I was meeting was. I don't want to say she was a big Incubus fan. I want to say she was the Incubus fan. She was like a suit, like it was all she would talk about. It was all she played in her car. It was annoying how much she loved Incubus. Did she go all the way back to like Fungus Among Us and, and Science oh, yeah. and oh, way, be, way before Dude. Morning View and... and yes. What is yes. It? All, all, all the funk rap kind of stuff they used to deal with. The, yeah, all of it. And she knows, was in love with Brandon. The whole knows everything. So I go into um, HMV to stay warm. I'm in there looking at CDs and I look up and there's Ben, Brandon and Kilmore, the DJ. And they're just in HMV. And like they're I'm not like, signing oh. autographs or anything? No, like they're buying albums, right? You mean, you mean they're, they're human like the rest of us? <laughs> yeah, they buy, they use money. That's crazy. Anyways. Um, but um, 
So I just was like, this is wild. This, so I went up to them. I said, hey, hey, family music, um, crazy guy. What, what are you guys doing here? And they're like, oh, they've just done, or they were just rehearsed for an intimate interactive. I think they were doing one the following day. So they were in town early and they were rehearsing for it. And uh, I'm like, this is wild. I'm like, I'm meeting someone who's like a super fan of yours. And it's so crazy that you're here and blah, blah, blah. And so I talked to him for a bit. They were super polite and we, we talked for a bit. And um, eventually Ben and I started talking more. Kill and, and, uh, and uh, Brandon just kind of went off to their thing. Um, and then I started talking more and he was like, so do you play? I'm like, yeah, I play drums. Like, oh, do you, do you play for anyone? And I was like, actually, and I pulled out the Thornley CD. I was like, that's, that's me. He's like, oh, th-. he's like, is this Ian Thornley? I'm like, yeah. He's like, you play drums with Ian Thornley? And I was like, you know who Ian Thornley is? <laughs> like, <laughs> What the hell? He's like, dude, he's like, that's one of my guitar heroes. He's like, I, I've looked up to him since that first album. He's like, I think he's incredible. Like, holy, he, and he was a little geeked out. He's like, well, I'm obviously I'm buying this, you know? <laughs> so, so um, he, he was like, let me get your number. I was like, okay. So he took my number and I didn't expect anything of it. And we, I left and then ended up going to meet the, the girl. And I was like, Okay, Ashley, we're going to miss this movie, but here's what's going to happen. We're going to walk back to HMV, and I said, I need you, before I tell you the rest of this, I need you to stay calm and not blow my cool here with these people. But Incubus is in there. She's like, <gasps> I'm like, Ashley? She's like, okay, okay, okay. I'm like, we're going to go back. I'm going to introduce you to them, and we're going to take two minutes of their time, and then we're going <laughs> to fuck up because I don't want to bother these people. And so she like vibrated back to the, to the HMV and we met them. And, but it was, it was wild. It was just crazy to, to meet them like that. And so um, anyway, a year passed. I didn't hear from him. Again, I didn't expect to. A year passed. And then he um, said, uh, and he, he reached out to me on MySpace. It was MySpace at the time, right? Good old MySpace. Good old MySpace. I wish we had MySpace over Facebook, man. Um, he, he, uh, he reached out and said, hey, Seiku, I don't know if you remember me. My name is Ben Kenny. Yeah, yeah, I, I remember you, dude. Um, I, I had your number in my phone, but I got into a, I, I, I dipped my, my, my motorbike and I ruined my phone with your number in it. And I, I was, I've been looking for you and I finally found you on here. Um, would you be interested in playing a show with me? I have a, a, my own project, my own label. And my own album's out. It's me on guitar, another guy on bass, and uh, and I would love for you to play drums on it. And I was like, okay, when's the show? He's like, I don't know. He's like, but we have to do a show together. He's like, I really want, I heard you on the album. He goes, I really want you to, to play drums for me with this thing. And at the time, I had just left Thornley, and all my musical commitments were kind of not important. And I'd been getting calls um, from a, a a uh, musical director, a friend of mine who was in Thailand, who was overseas playing like in clubs every night, like five, six nights a week or something. And he said, hey, just come down here. It's like, you can make so much money. The weather's beautiful. The girls are beautiful. You don't have to spend the money. We, we, they put you up in like a five-star hotel. Your meal taken care of. So I was going to go down there for a year and just play jazz um, and R&B in, in, in like a, a bar in Thailand for uh, in, in a hotel for a uh, for a year. So I committed to that. 
And so I, I told Ben that I was like, dude, I'd love to, but I'm leaving in August to do this thing. He's like, well, then we got to do a show before you leave. So he booked the show um, at the Knitting Factory in LA. He and Ashley, um, his bass player, flew down to Toronto and I, I found us a, a, a place to rehearse. We rehearsed for a couple of days going through songs. And I think I did okay. I, I, it was it was all right. It wasn't, I don't think I was, you know, blowing the roof off or anything. And then we went down to LA, did another rehearsal. And even that rehearsal was kind of timid, let's just say. And so before I hit the stage with them for the show, I just said to myself, like, dude, this is it. This is the biggest artist you've ever played with. Make an impression. Like, don't fuck this up. Like, you got this. You know these songs. Just do it. And I went on stage and I just, I don't know what it was at the time. I just turned something on. And Ben, I just remember, all I remember from the show is that like three moments where Ben were like, trying to look at me kind of like, yeah, like, where did you come from? Um, and from there, he was like, he was like, this is it. He's like, this is the group. This is it. He's like, you go to Thailand, you do your thing. When you get back, we're going to start recording. We're going to start playing shows. And, and, uh, and so almost a month, the day after I got back, he was like, yeah, we're touring. We're, we're, so we, we've done a, we, we had, I don't play with him anymore, um, but, but we've done a few tours and uh, tracked a few things together. He, Ben, in his own right, is a phenomenal, phenomenal drummer. Like, he's, he's one of these guys who, he, he's not going to sit behind a kit and like, make stuff up. He has to work stuff out. But I, so much of his music I, that I had to learn to play for, for the tours took me to a different level because I had to learn sticking that I just was not at all familiar with. But he wanted to be just that way. Um, and it was really, really rewarding. So the three of us became really, really close. And um, we, we, we did a bunch of touring and stuff. There were always smaller shows because over the years, Incubus is kind of, you know, the notoriety's kind of gone down. So the shows got smaller and smaller, but it was a lot of fun just to, just to play with this guy that people knew um, from this thing. And, and I was very proud of the, the work we did together, you know? And that was the start of a 12 year relationship of, of yeah, that's right. playing yeah. live with him. And wow. what, what most people don't know is he was the guitarist for the roots. And then that's he was right. the bass player for incubus. And then right. on his solo stuff, he plays everything, including everything. drums. Like how talented is that dude? Produces it. Does the, does like the, he's a phenomenal photographer. So he does all the artwork for it. Like he, he's, his knowledge of drums so far supersedes mine. It's not, it's not even funny. Like, yeah, he's something else, man. Really how, can, how can one person get all the talent on all the instruments? I mean, what about the rest of us that just want to be good it's on one instrument, you know? Seriously, like he, he came up in Philly. So from what he's explained to me is, and it's not just for, there's a bunch of places like this in the States where you just grew up and you learned to play everything. You learned to play keys, and play bass, and play guitar and drums, and people would interchange based on what the need was for the gig at the time. So you would get calls for for R and B gigs, you know, or like or neo soul gigs at the time it was for him, and you would be playing drums one week and then hop off into a tour where you're playing bass for someone else. And again, these are you know these cats like you you know you know these are all guys who came up in the same time as the Roots and stuff and all that neo soul stuff. So you can't be mediocre. You have to be exceptional at it. So he took those, um, those skill sets and transferred them into 
to stop music he was into, which he came up playing more punk and hardcore stuff, but just decided to be really good on guitar and really good on bass and singing. And he's one of those guys. It's really frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> it's super frustrating. Um, yeah. So we, we have about 20 minutes left. Uh, I just want to quickly touch on uh, Bedouin Sound Clash and Serena Ryder, and then we'll mm-hmm. finish off with as much as we can get in with the big Rex sure. stuff. Um, before those two, uh, we have another fan question. I just want to make sure to get the fan questions in because it means a lot to them that sure. their voice can be heard, you know? So this is a strange question. So do your best and it can be a short answer. So from David Steer, um, this is the other fan group on Facebook. So they're called fans of big wreck and Thornley. And there's one, uh, there's 1100 fans in there. And David mm-hmm. Steer asks, what's his million dollar idea that no one takes seriously. Wow. Just do your best with that one. Can I tell you, I'll tell you a million dollar idea that only just recently got taken seriously. I can do, I can do that one. I've added. David, I've added a gong, a 40-inch gong to my setup. I don't play it. I don't touch it once. I've had this idea for years. I've tried to ask other people in rock bands, and I've always been told no. This is the first time that Ian and company thought, that's actually fucking hysterical. To have a big gong on stage behind me, this really imposing, un- like impossible to miss gong, that you never play once. We even we even sound check our gong. So when when we're about to go on stage as a headliner, my tech goes up and texts kick, and then he, okay, okay, cool. It never gets touched throughout the show. I just have always loved the idea of people looking on stage being like, oh, I can't wait to hit that fucking thing. And then the encore comes, and then we leave, and we never play it. And thankfully, I'm in a band now where. Ian and our manager think it's it's a really stupid, funny thing. So we have this massive thing that we get our crew to load in and out and set up <laughs> that, we, that we never we never touch. That's my million dollar idea. That's amazing. That's uh, I'm sure a lot of the hardcore fans were wondering what's going on with that, and now they know. That's awesome. And hey, fans can't leave after two or three songs because they got to wait for that gong hit, right? <laughs> exactly. So. That's too good. So uh, you you played live with Bedouin Sound Clash from 2010 to 2012. You also played drums on their album, Light the Horizon. So that album mm-hmm. had three hit singles, Mountaintop, Elongo, Brutal Hearts. All three of those have very different drumming on it. Like one is like mm-hmm. Tom Heavy. Some of them are like the rims you're playing. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, over to Serena Ryder, uh, you played for a decade, 2012 to 2022. Um and you started playing with her as Stompa became this like massive, massive single. Right. Yeah. Is there anything that you want to touch on between Bedwin and Serena Ryder? Um, I have all these questions, but I, I you know, you know I mean, all the Big yeah. Rec fans are, are like, how has he not talked about Big Rec yet? An hour and 45 minutes in. Um, yeah, I don't know. The, the, uh, the Bedwin stuff was interesting. It, um, I just got called out of the blue for it. I guess they were looking for a new drummer. And it was one of those moments in my life where I I was, you know, I talked about earlier, just looking up, working, 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 looking up and realizing that you've made a certain impression. Um, they they told me that that when they went to ask uh, three different major labels at the time who would be a good fit, my name came up first each time, which I, I thought was a really good, um, it made me feel great that, that the work I've been putting in for the years kind of, 
you know, was being recognized. So that was great. At the time, it was definitely the biggest thing I'd ever done because they, you know, they, those guys are known all over the world. We, we've done tours, you know, all over the planet. And, uh, and uh, they, whether it's big or small, they, 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 have, they made an impression of people. So it was really fun doing, doing that um, and having to be the, the, I was the ringer in that band. You know, I was the guy that had to come out every night and in that three piece be the like flashy guy and, and, and you know, kind of elevate stuff. So it was really fun. It brought me back a little bit to my punk roots, which I hadn't done for some time. So yeah, I really like it. Eventually, you know, we just kind of didn't really, um, we weren't really getting along so well and it just made the most sense for me to just kind of step away. So I did that. Um, Serena, um, yeah, I just got recommended for that gig and um, I didn't know her beforehand. She had a kind of a decent level of success before Stampa, um, not certainly not a household name, but um, but I joined when that record was being um, was being launched. And yeah, it was wild just to see this meteoric rise, you know, like within, within I don't know, a couple months, we're seeing massive billboards and sides of highways and the videos were all over the place and the shows were just arenas and stuff. So she is a really gifted um, singer. Like very few people I would walk on stage and like, the way, what I would hear in my in-ears of her singing is the exact same thing I heard on the record every time, which, which was really um, incredible to see. Um, but she and I really got along super well. She, we're very close. I don't play with her anymore. I had to step away to the big rec stuff, but that was, um, I wasn't on the records for that. Those were mostly drum loops and her producer at the time played uh, drums as well. So he did the drums in the album. Um, but um, yeah, it was just so much fun to play with her. It was just a, a way poppier and, you know, um, just the, the reason um, I was there for 10 years is because of how close we were. She calls me her her big brother and she's my little sister and we feel that way about each other. And um, it was tough to step away, but Big Rec requires someone who's Big Rec drummer. You know, it, it requires somebody who doesn't say no to stuff. And with my schedule with Serena and a few other artists, it was just, it was untenable. So I had to, you know, I made a choice and this is where Big Rec is, uh, yeah. and Serena notwithstanding, you know, but but like I will tell people this very, very honestly, uh, maybe a little brutally, but like I don't, didn't like most of the music that I played for a living. And that's, that was fine. It's not my, it's not my job to like it. It's my job to play it well uh, and make money doing it. So it was just something I, I would do for a long time. Just, I just didn't expect to enjoy what I played. And it is wild to be in a band now with people who I love. I love each of those guys. I love our crew. I love the music we made together. I love the songs that existed before I came in. I, I, I was a big rec fan before I met Ian. You know, I met Ian by chance. And, um, and uh, you know, so I was a massive fan before I, he knew I existed. So getting to play those songs and the songs we've written and getting to get challenged every night is uh, it, I, I really couldn't be happier. Like, it's, it's the most fulfilling thing I've done in as far back as I can remember, you know? 
So last year, 2021, you joined Big Rec. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you guys have recorded a new album called Big Rec 7, 15 songs. You've, divi- you've, you've divided, you've decided to release it in five song chunks. So you have mm-hmm. uh, three EPs, two of them are out, 7.1, 7.2, and then 7.3 is on the way. Um, just the way the industry is now, the way people consume music, it's it's smart to release it in smaller chunks and have <laughs> more singles available. It looks like the band is always there instead of one big thing comes out and then after three months, there's nothing for the next year and a half waiting for yeah. a new album. So I think it's a smart business move. Um, mm-hmm. We have a fan question uh, from Brandy Charlton, who says, what was the call like when Ian asked you to play with him again, this time with Big Rack? If you got a call, I don't know if an audition came up. I don't know how all that. Happened. No, it, it was a call. It was it was completely out of the blue. Like so, since I left Thornley, you know, Ian and I, we've stayed in touch. Certainly, we we, we didn't talk every week. We talked a couple times a month as friends, and I think our relationship actually got better after I left that band. You know, we were both in a certain spot where we were pretty toxic to each other <laughs> back in Thornley. So it's. It's, it, it got better over the years just being friends. And um, um, yeah, January 21, he called me on the blue and said, hey man, we are having some problems. Uh, Chuck, the original, the other drummer, sorry, um, was having some health issues. Um, and he j- it, it bled through to that. He, when they were in the studio tracking, he was having a really difficult time laying some stuff down. And he said, would you be interested in coming in and taking a stab at these 15 songs tomorrow. <laughs> you know, Chuck's yeah, had the no song. No time for, like the present, I suppose. Oof. Chuck's had the song for three months. The whole band's had a song for three months to kind of figure out their parts and things like that. And, and here I have to come in like the following day and kind of figure it out. So um, I went in and uh, and he had told me, he said, listen, there, there, there might be a spot opening in the band, but like, I don't, want to say that for sure just hold and if something happens i'll let you know and then i think after we trapped i think i tracked was it five or four songs the first day i can't remember um the first day we, we, we tracked a bunch of stuff and uh and then it was like yeah it's if if you're happy to be here we we absolutely want you here like for sure you know, Ian and I have always been been massive fans of each other's playing, and uh, and so um, yeah, it just kind of happened that way, pretty organically. Like, um, just uh, I tracked the rest of the songs. We we were like, again, my performance anxiety was. I don't think he even knows this, but it was at an all time high when I was doing that, and I did not want to make mistakes. It was it was a chance to play for a band that I've always had nothing but respect for. I didn't want to let Ian down. The songs were incredible and I wanted to do right by them. And so um, I really had to kind of look within myself and 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 then on top of that, Ian's so excited to have me. The whole time I'm tracking, he's like looking from the control room, like looking at me, <laughs> just making stuff up, making fills up as I'm, as I'm trying to figure out what the section is for song and stuff. And thankfully, he, it went really well and he was just like this is so, he's like he's like he's like you've elevated these songs he's like i did not expect that level of of uh, just uh musicality come to those songs and so getting that feedback from him was like yeah yeah okay okay and it kind of gave me wind in my sails to kind of really um 
do as best job as I could for the songs. And, and by the time we were done, you know, like, you know, just hearing him, like he would text me like, dude, you, you next leveled it. Like, I don't know what to say. Like, thank you so much. So hearing that from a band that I, you know, he, I've been in love with him since the first album, like everyone else. So knowing that it felt that way just made me feel for the first time in a long time, like I really brought something to the table and I was really, I was home, you know, I was really home. So uh, that's how it happened. It was just, it was just a circumstance that I just happened to be ready for and it worked out. So I listened to the, uh, the two EPs, the 10 new songs several mm. times to really take them in, man, there's some heavy riffs in there. <laughs> there's like some amazing playing there's jams, there's crazy guitar solos. Um, yeah. There's, there's some blues influence throughout the, the hard rock stuff. Um, does, does big rec feel like a great band, a great match for you to be a part of, to, to really show your, your skills. Cause there's like different time signatures. There's, there's a lot going on that allows you to show off your chops. Yeah. A hundred percent. Like I, I really like Joel, I really do feel like I'm home. You know what I mean? Like I've, I've been bouncing around and it, by design, I've been bouncing around trying to be a jack of all trades, you know, master of none to, to as many things as I can, because it's, it's having more streams of income has been how I've made my career in the last couple of decades. So um, it is, it feels really good to be settled to be in something where I, I get it. Like I get what he's going for in the old stuff and the new stuff. I get what he's going for on stage and, and he in turn trusts me to, play the right things for the songs as well as bring new things so what that means is when we're on stage there are times where i'm playing stuff that or i'm, or I'm dropping out in certain sections or i'm or i'm bringing in a, a part from a different song that we all know to like you know like we, we were doing come again the other day and i've you know played that song i don't know how many hundreds of times over the past you know in and out of the past decade and change but i heard a spot in it somewhere where I could play the drum beat from Sunday Bloody Sunday. And I put it in there and he, he was just like, but he was all smiles, you know, cause he, he there's, a, there's the trust that, that I, whatever decision I make, while it might be jarring at the second is right for the music. It's not gonna, not gonna be a record scratch moment. It's gonna, it's gonna add to it. So having that kind of trust um, with something that's so, I, I, I call big rec important. Like again, and this has nothing to do with me, whether I, I leave the band tomorrow or was never in it in the first place. I, it's, I, I do feel, I have felt for, for decades that this band is one of the more important bands in Canada. Um, certainly one of the best live acts in, in Canada, bar none. And so being told by the guy who stewards the whole thing that, you know, he's happy I'm here and that, and that he felt, he feels confident with me on stage, you know, backing up. It, it means the world, you know, it means I'm, I'm doing something right. And that then in turn helps the anxiety that I often feel on stage and it helps me feel confident about bringing stuff to the, to the table, to the music. So. Can we, can we take a moment to acknowledge just how talented uh, Ian Thornley is as a singer, as a songwriter, as a guitarist, <laughs> as a front man, this, this guy is Canadian royalty. Can we just acknowledge him <laughs> for a second? You know, and I'll tell you something. It's so funny because he's told me this a bunch over the years, like he only, sang, learned to sing and sang in Big Rec because when they started the band, they were auditioning singers. He was just going to play lead guitar and write songs, but they just couldn't find anyone who was good enough. So he was like, fine, fine. I'll, fine, I guess I'll do it. 
but he didn't want to do it. You know, he still to this day considers himself a guitar player. He doesn't really consider himself a singer, even though he's got this incredible voice, you know. And he has, I tell people this all the time, he's retroactively ruined my favorite guitar players growing up. Because playing with somebody who has that skill set, you and you listen to you playing with it, you learn what that level of playing takes and, and where it comes from. So then when you go back and you listen to like, dude, I, I used to fucking love Primus. I can't listen to Larry Lalonde anymore. I can't listen to his playing anymore. I can't because it's just it's 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 even at such a level that you it 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 um it educates your ears. So when you go back and listen to stuff that you just like because you liked that at the time, you can now be a lot more critical of it and be like, oh, that's those are wrong notes. Okay. <laughs> you know, like he's 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 he really is. And like I said, like I I, you know, when I when I met Ben that time, Ben was like, dude, he's he's in my top three. Like he's the dude, you know. Um he he's his ability to songwrite, his ability to sing, the way he pushes himself on stage every night, like. Yeah, I feel very fortunate to be in a band with him again, for sure. So just a, a few days ago, you posted a drum cam video of a live performance of Fear and Cowardice. Mm. And it's awesome. Like, it's an amazing jam. It's a great video. So a couple of questions are, number one, uh, when did you start using a, a drum cam or where did you get the idea to start using that? Because it's awesome. And number two, the the mix sounds great normally with a drum cam it's like you're basically just hearing the drums and a little of the bleed from the monitors uh are you getting a direct uh signal from the board or something for your drum cam so first question i started using it in the bedouin days i think i just saw a bunch of guys just posting youtube videos with the gopros and stuff and i started using it as a tool it wasn't for posting anything ever it was just meant to watch was doing and be like you don't you don't why did you play that what, you know and and clean stuff up um and then over the years i've been braver when i feel confident about which is tough because you know you can go on youtube and see phenomenal drummers so uh, it took me a long time to feel confident posting anything <laughs> that was worthy of of being online um but that was definitely in the bedwind days and then now that i'm in big rack and it's kind of um we have a lot of fans who care about all the all this stuff they, they really it means a lot to them um and i felt more and more confident about the fact that like wow we're really good live and the stuff that i get to play is stuff that i think people really get a, a kick out of um i've just been posting more and more so that's where that came from as far as a mix that is a mix from our monitors that's a monitor mix um from our our, our monitor tech um who just cleaned it up a bit and yeah, so I just basically take that audio and I marry it with the video. I just sync it up and, and there you go. Because, yeah, the, the GoPro audio was trash. It's all harsh cymbals and you don't hit a kick drum sometimes and it's annoying. The, the vocals and the guitars get washed out. So I do a mix. I ask for a mix rather that's got a little bit of everything, but it's still very drum heavy because it's, it's a drum cam, but still has all the elements so you can see how everything works together. But yeah, that was a, that video was the first time we played that song. So it's still a little rough in spots for me, but um, it's it's honest, you know. So I I, uh, I put it up because I thought people get a kick out of it. Yeah, drum drum cams usually don't sound great, and that one sounded really good. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, we have a fan question from Evan Simmons. He he asks any seven point three hints 
So he's asking about the 30P. Uh, any hints about when it's coming out or what to expect? I can't give you any hints about when it's coming out. We're still looking at 7.2 right now and, you know, and, and focusing on, on that release. But in terms of what you can expect, so the goal of releasing these in the way we did was, yeah, we, we feel confident about all the songs. We think all the songs are incredible. But And when you release a full album, you know, certain songs will get spikes, you know, what people will kind of attach to. And other songs that are great songs might not get their due because of that. So the idea of the EP is like, you are now able to focus on all the songs and appreciate them as whole. So when the full album comes out, you know it back, right? The goal was to have a bit of three different types of music. One was like, more of like, uh, maybe a bluesy Zeppelin type of thing, which you've, there are songs on, um, on 7.1, 7.2 that, that have those, those feels like rye bread and uh, spit it out, you know, have decidedly bluesy Zeppelin type of thing. Um, then to have something more, for lack of a less general term, something more proggy, right? Something with time signatures and more solos and things like that. And then so that, and then stuff that we call it just doom, stuff that's just like, like bombs away right? Like just riff rock, you know? So each EP, we want to have a bit of each of those elements. So that being said, 7.3 will have, will have more of that. We'll have more of each of those um, kind of um, styles, um, but just different songs. That's about all I can tell you right now. Now, I have a quote here from someone that knows all about live audio uh, this is mm. from Dan Preston, who's a front of house mm. engineer, uh, who's worked with Finger Eleven, I Mother Earth, Three Days Grace, and Big Wreck. So yes, uh, this is what Dan has to say. He just got home yesterday from a tour with J.J. Wild and the Glorious right. Sons, and they played yeah. with Kiss in like the Coliseum. I don't know. They played some crazy places. So. Oh, yeah. yeah. So this is from Dan Preston. This is a longer quote as well. People like writing really <laughs> long quotes for you. I don't know. You inspire them to write novels. So. Dan Preston says, being a rock guitarist in the 90s, it's obvious that I was a fan of Big Wreck and Mr. Thornley in particular. Naturally, as Ian went solo, I followed. My first encounter with Thornley, the Thornley band was at Canadian Music Week 2003 when they were playing with Three Days Grace at the Opera House. As much as I was looking forward to watching Ian rip it up, I was blown away by Seku. The precision, power, and style that was displayed made me realize that this guy was a force. When I heard that he was returning to the lineup last year, I was super stoked knowing that I would be the guy at, at the front of house getting to mix this powerhouse band with Seku now in the mix. He's a wonderful hang, and I very much look forward to the next time I'm behind the board for Seku and Big Wreck uh, once again to drop a few elbows. That's from Dan Preston. <laughs> That's right. Dan's the man. He, um, I, I love his mixing. He, he mixes us very drum heavy. <laughs> so I, I'm a big fan of the way Dan mixes and a great hang. He's one of those, he's, he does front house, but he also does some tour managing. And he's, I've always found a, a really good um, facet of a tour manager is somebody who does not let the artist feel like they're dealing with a thousand and one stresses, which most tour managers do on a given day things are always going wrong and they're always trying to put out fires um and you know here along here i come going hey dan um 
catering. Um, uh, do they have any, um, you know, I'm asking these in, inane questions about, and he's talking to me like, mm-hmm, yep. Yeah. So you'll find catering does, we'll have fish and then we'll have some vegan options. While well, I mean, I'm just trying to figure out why there's no backdrop on stage or why there's no riser or whatever it is, you know, he's, he's got a really good temperament for babysitting, you know, grown adult, grown, grown children rather, um, while still doing a really incredible job at front of house and as a TM. So love that guy. Yeah. I hope we get to work with him again soon for sure. So I have one final quote and mm. then a couple deep questions and we, we will wrap up. So this is from, uh, bass player and vocalist Curtis Freeman, who I know from uh, the Metalworks days. So he says, Seku belongs on big stages in front of big audiences. There are a lot of fine musicians out there, but Seku is more than that. He's an entertainer. As a fan, I've watched him play on several occasions and have even had the honor to play with him a few times too. Deep pockets, respect for the songs, attention to detail, chops. This guy is the full package. On top of that, he looks cool. And his social media game is next level. Man, people love your social media. Uh, there, there was no doubt that Seku was destined to play great gigs. This is just the beginning. That's from Curtis Freeman. Wow. Yeah, he's a sweetheart. A very funny guy, too, as, as you know. Um, but yeah, that's that's great. Yeah, people keep mentioning the social media thing. I, I, um, I have a very, I think, odd sense of humor, but I, I've I've somehow managed to get a lot of people who seem to get a kick out of um my my instagram page i to the point where i almost feel bad posting stuff that's not funny because people just always i like joel i'm not kidding i've heard this a few hundred times in person like your instagram is the first thing i go to and i wake up and you made me laugh. me and my people my, me and my friends are at work we're bored we go through everything we just laugh for hours and hours and you know every so often i'll i'll, I'll get a like on a post from like three years ago i'm like you you were sitting at your phone for that long to get to that back. So it's, it, you know, it's, um, I, I just, I, I actually do feel bad sometimes when I post something personal because this is not funny. It's just, you know, just my life. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's very funny when I, we did a gig in, in London and, and this, this girl started walking up to me and she was like, looking at me and smiling. I was like, Oh God, here I go. Sorry, sweetie. You know? Yeah. And she was like, I just want to tell you, your Instagram. And I'm like, cool. Can I, can I get any props for being a drummer? Or is it just going to be like about the content I find on, on, on the internet and I make a funny caption for it. So I still have to find a way to, to, to really monetize my. Yeah. You're, my- you're on your way to being a social media influencer. Some of these people, they, <laughs> they post yeah, a picture and they get like 50 grand. So I got to figure that out. Yeah. That's all good. So I actually, right now, as I read his quote, I remember the first time I met, um, I met Curtis here. Uh, I was hosting an open mic at Cooper's pub down the street from Metalworks, and, uh, people are signing up and I see him and he, I think he had, uh, an instrument with him and he wasn't on the list. And I said, Hey, are you looking to play? He goes, Oh, I don't know. Like maybe I'll play. And eventually uh, I think there was still an opening and I go, Hey man, like I can get you up right now if you want to go. He's like, oh, okay. He gets up and he killed it. I think he played some Beatles songs and it was like uh-huh. incredible. Like his playing his vocals, everything was, he was like a total pro and open <laughs> mics, open mics. There's various levels of talent. Yeah, and then there's sure. this like world-class musician that just like fumbled his way onto the stage. And that's oh. how 
how I met him. And then he started working in Metalworks afterwards. So Wow, that's hilarious. Yeah, he's awesome. Dude. I haven't played with him in a long, long time. But he's definitely one of those guys that, like, he, he just, there's, a, you know, I have to tell you, there's a, there's a uh, connection that you have to have with your bass player, you know? And um, he, when I would step on stage with him, there's a few guys I would play with that as great as they were, you, you have to kind of feel around the dark where they're sitting and where you're singing, how it works together. And he was one of those guys where it was just, it was instant. It was just within, by the chorus. I was like, oh, I got you. And he was like, oh, I got you. And it, it, when you have that, like we take it for granted, but that is such a, um, especially in the session world, it is such a, 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 a luxury to have somebody where you don't have to have that, you have that that instant telepathy. You don't have to have to work on it or like, it's just there. You can now focus on playing what, what you need to play, you know? Like, yeah, he's, he's special for sure. So final three questions. The first two, you can rapid fire through them quickly. Okay. Um, right. Do you still have some musical dreams in your heart that you've still not achieved that you're working towards? Um, I mean, sure, yeah. Uh, boy, um, I'd like to headline Red Rocks. Um, that would be incredible. I've played there once as an opener um, with Serena. We opened for uh, One Republic there. And I'd, I'd heard about it, you know, I saw the YouTube video or, or, the, or the YouTube video and all the, all the other performances and stuff. But being there was, was, was like, a, was religious. Um, and the idea of headlining Red Rocks, like looking at from a drum riser on Red Rocks would be, that would be something else. And doing it with Big Rep would would be i mean that it's definitely you know when they say bucket list that's not like that's like yeah that's that's the top um certainly i uh be, before you you add any others i i remember owning a uh incubus live at red rocks dvd and then uh yesterday i watched there's a brand new bill burr special that's him live at red rocks anyways oh, just wow. drop, dropping that in now uh and then if you have more musical i, I know we're running out i know we're running out of time but i'll tell you a funny anecdote about ben and that he was recording um and he, i don't know if he wants me to tell us probably not but i'll tell you this um <laughs> but like he was so stoked about doing that that performance obviously anyone is um, and I think they had done a bunch of touring leading up to like, just to get ready for it. Um, on the tour, Brandon was singing certain songs, a little pitchy. He was either sharp or flat on certain spots. So as Ben is one of the backup vocalists to kind of support him, he would change his pitch, even though he knew what the right notes were, he changed his pitch just to support Brandon. So it sounded fuller on that, on that run. Brandon didn't tell him this, but when they recorded uh, the video of Red Rocks, he went in a couple weeks later after he heard his vocals were pitchy and re-recorded his vocals so that he was on point and left Ben's. <laughs> so Ben is on that recording. He's all, he's, he's like, I can't listen to that thing. He's like, it drives me crazy because here I am trying to do this and this motherfucker went and redid his vocals. He's trying to that. do a solid for him and then the, exactly. the Brandon left him hanging. Exactly. It, like, and not just not just on a gig, like on a DVD that everyone like hundreds of thousands of people. It's just forever. Like. It's just forever. yeah, exactly, exactly. That's that's too funny. Uh, any other musical dreams or uh, next question? 
there's a uh, gra- I, there's a grammy out there with your name on it there's lots of stuff sure yeah no sure i mean a grammy be be neat i i think i think a, a, a small dream is i'm really really proud of this uh these eps and this subsequent album that we did i i i really do feel and it I, i'm not i don't brag a lot but 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 i really do feel that we are one of the better bands in this country um and it would be a real shame to me if more people didn't get a chance to hear the stuff you know it's it's this, the ep is doing decent you know that this last one uh i think is number one was number one for a few weeks on the rock charts and number two behind drake's on canada itunes um uh, or Canada's Apple Music, and it, it would have been number one if Drake didn't put an album out. So I feel confident that it's it's getting its due in certain places. But a real dream for me would be, like, you know, a Grammy would be nice, but I would love a Juno. Not even. I know it sounds crazy, but just so that people in this country understand, like, this guy is still at it. this guy Ian Throne, he's still at it, and the band is better than it's ever been. Like, I, I'm comp- I'm, I'm I feel complimented in hearing from multiple people that this is the best lineup that's ever been because as somebody who was a fan, I thought that lineup, you know, at the time was, was, was it. So um, it would mean a lot for sure if, if um, people um, over time just, you know, and I'm not even talking about record sales. I'm just talking about acknowledging that, you know, this is one of the better bands and has been for decades, one of the better bands this country's ever produced, you know? When no. Oh. When you look back on your life and career, what are you most proud of and what are you most grateful for? This, being in this band is, and, and these EPs is certainly one of them. This, I, I, it might be top one, but playing in 24 seven spies was also pretty seminal. Just. And it's, it's not a lot of band that it's, it's it's not a band rather that a lot of people know about. But for me, growing up, I'll just I'll be really quick about it. It's they were a band. Are you familiar with them at all? Only because I was talking to Darren about them. No, when, no when I was getting the quote, yeah, for sure. So coming up again as as a black rock kid, coming up it was it was three rock bands. It was Fishbone, it was Living Color. And it was twenty four seven spies, and it was those were my chances to see black people playing hardcore or metal or heavy rock music or whatever, and, and doing it well. And spies was um, more of the hardcore and metal variety than, than anything else, and they were always important to me. Um, I won't go over the, the timeline of it, but things they, they broke up, they got back together just through Facebook, I happened to reach out to the guitar player, the, the, the core guy of the band, and said, hey, I'm a fan. I'm so glad to you guys back together. Thank you so much for what you've done. You, you've, you've made people like me, you know, by being, you know, who you are. And we just got to talking, got talking. They eventually had a falling out with the drummer. He asked me to come to New York to audition for the band. And I didn't think I was going to get it. Like, I just, it's, again, it's like, that's letter A and I'm letter Z. Like I'm I'm the byproduct of these people. Like I'm not gonna be in the band. I'm just, but I'm gonna go and meet the bass player and the guitar player who are the, the, the band and, and they're my they're my idols. So I'm just gonna meet them and that's plenty. So I flew down to New York and I, I locked myself in the rehearsal space before that for two days and just eight hours a day just learning the stuff backwards. I couldn't play double bass drum pedal. There was some 
double bass drum pedal on the songs that I just would make up for with the four time and the kick, like just to, you know, and then went down to the audition and, uh, and four songs in, they were like, yeah, it's your gig. Of course, no, you, you're killing it right now. You, you crushed it. And so to me, walking on that rehearsal space and back to my Airbnb at the time was, I mean, to say I was on cloud nine doesn't begin to describe it. Just, and it, it did, we, we ended up doing like, I think one show in the year that was in the band. And then eventually Fish was there and Fish saw that I was playing and saw that he was like, and they had asked him to play before, years before, and he'd said no due to some other commitments. And so now he was like, you know, if you want me to play, I guess I could do it. And so they, they like, hey, we love you, but, um, you know, Fish is our boy. We've known him, Spies and um, Living Color and Fishbone toured a bunch. So they've known each other for years. They're the same age, roughly. So, you know, they, it just made more sense for them. They were old friends for them to have him back, which was fine. Um, um, but, but just knowing that I was the drummer for this band that I grew up listening to just, yeah, it's, it's definitely, definitely one of the top moments of my life, even though I didn't really, you know, go anywhere. Um, the stuff in terms of work that I've done, the stuff with Big Rec is uh, I could not be more proud of what we've done and what, and then on top of that, where we take it live and we play it. It's a whole other thing. So I, I really feel like I've come into a new life, a second life on the instrument um, and, and a new love for playing. And, and, uh, and I'm really, I cannot wait for people to hear all these songs. Um, and the feedback we've been getting has been phenomenal. So I feel pretty good. But again, you know, as Ian puts it, like, listen, if this record does well, it doesn't do well, we're going to go down swinging. <laughs> so I, I, and I love that. I love that approach, you know? So, yeah. So final question, if you could go back in time and you could sit down <laughs> next to your 10 year old self. So you have cute little Seku sitting there and you have a lifetime of experience of mentorship of lessons, highs and lows. Right. Uh, what advice do you give little Seku get, to uh, help him through his get life? Get a teacher, get a drum teacher, get it or get a drum teacher and learn to sing or play piano. These, these are these are two things I do not do. I do not sound like piano, but I do feel again. I'm, I'm turning fifty next year, and I really do feel like I, I taught myself to play. I still can't read music, but I've taught myself to play. And while I'm happy with what I've gotten, I feel like there's a glass ceiling that ability gets you. You know, if, if you are just trying to brute force your way through learning things, there's things that I've figured out over the years that I've, that would have taken me a month with a good teacher or, or, or a lesson with a good teacher that I spent months or years trying to figure out. So I would have certainly told myself to, to get a teacher, to, to, to have my, my, the, the basis, the foundation of what I do be, um, be bigger and better and, and learn a different instrument. So you have a better appreciation of songwriting and a better appreciation of what you bring to the table when you're playing drums, you know? So certainly, I would tell it to, and I tell it to, I, I have people asking me for advice, like what, you know, what do I do to, to be a session musician or to get to where you are? I tell them, I said, find a good teacher and listen to as much stuff as possible. But I, I already did that. So I would tell a 10 year old me, get a teacher, stay away from Vlada Tabachek because she's just going to break your heart and pick up another instrument, you know? 
for sure. Great. That's great advice. So for our listeners, uh, where can they go online to find uh, more information about Big Rec? And then if you could share your Instagram that we've talked about for the last two hours. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, Big Rec is bigrec.com. It's our website. You'll see tour dates. You'll, um, you know, find out what we're up to. And uh, this is a pretty busy year. So there'll be a lot of information on there as terms of, in terms of show. We have some tours coming up that we can't really talk about yet. They're pretty cool. And uh, we've got a bunch of like this, this year is nothing but shows and shows. And then we've got the 30 P coming up, um, which at a date we can't speak about just yet, but you can find that a lot on bigret.com. I'm not on Facebook, but I believe that there are, there's a Facebook page or three there to check out. Um, and then um, the band's Instagram is big Rec music um, at, at big Rec music. For me, I am at 40 deuce on Instagram. F-O-R-T-Y-D-E-U-C-E, um, where you'll find a lot of um, jokes and the occasional um, deep dive into my drum kit and or, or, or you know, shoulder drum cams uh, or videos of my dog. Um, um, uh, on YouTube, what am I on YouTube? Let me look, what am I on YouTube? Let me just look here real quick. I think I'm just, oh, yeah, I'm just Sekulamumba, S-E-K-O-U. L-U-M-U-M-B uh, on YouTube. Um, I've been posting more and more. I've got a couple of videos, uh, just um, play-alongs. Um, um, I've got some older stuff on there as well. I, I do some, I'm going to do more videos of kind of behind the scenes of what it's like of a touring band, certainly us being on the road uh, and opening for people or headlining, doing festivals. Um, I've gotten some really good feedback from people because we take this stuff for granted that people love seeing the minutia of our day of like, what do you do to this catering? And then you practice and then you sound check and then you, you get a problem with sound check. And so I'm going to do more. And then, your, and then your bus catches on fire. And your bus catches on fire as it does. Sometimes your bus blows up. Right. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, that was a, that happened. I, I planned to make this, that video obviously well before that happened, the bus blowing up. And the story behind him uh, was, a, was a nice way to kind of put a bow on the entire video. This is a this is a tour. Um, so yeah, you can find me on on YouTube and on um, and on Insta. I'm on Twitter, but I, I really just retweet other people. I don't really post much, um, but I'm Sekulumumba on there as well. So as we wrap up, I just want to take a second to acknowledge you for your lifelong pursuit of mastery as a drummer. Uh, I, I want to acknowledge you for your your transparency and your vulnerability on social media. So on your YouTube and your Instagram. So a lot of people can relate to that. It's very helpful to a lot of people, myself included. Uh, I want to acknowledge you for... Uh, you're drumming on some great albums from uh, from Bedouin Sound Clash, from uh, from Thornley, from Big Wreck. These are albums that I've grown up listening to, and and the music means a lot to me. And then, last but not least, I want to take a moment to thank you as a fan of this music, as a fan of yours, uh, for taking the last two plus hours uh, to answer my questions. These are questions that I've always wanted to know the answers to. <laughs> And uh, yeah. you pulled back the curtain for me here today. So uh, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, dude. I've, I've done a handful of interviews. And uh, I got to say, this is certainly the, the most um, personal one I've done. You know, I've, I've done a bunch of interviews talking about gear, talking about stuff I've done and stuff like that. But this is, I, I appreciate hearing feedback from, it was, it's great that you're getting feedback from people in the community and 
people that I've known for years. Um, Cause it, I, I would never hear this stuff from them ever. So it's great to, um, to know that you're appreciated uh, in that way, not just from them, but from you and from the fans as well. So thank you so much. It was really great. And it blew by, man. I'm sure you hear that a lot. It just uh, it flew by. Absolutely. So I, so yeah, to our, to our listeners, to the big rec fans, to the Seku fans, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for sticking with us for the last two plus hours. We appreciate mm-hmm. it. And we'll see you on the next episode. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode and I'd love to hear from you guys. My goal is to grow this podcast organically where you're giving me feedback on topics you'd like me to cover and guests you'd like me to interview. You can reach out to me on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Joel Martin Mastery. Joel is J-O-E-L and on Twitter at Joel Mastery. So I am done. I am complete. I approve this message and I'll see you on the next episode.